Tetragrammaton. I mean, you've just been through a lot. It's been a big, big few days now. Yeah. But is it always for WrestleMania? Is yeah. it is it always as much pressure? The fact that you're on TV every week, or is WrestleMania particularly uh, different? Different. The stakes are higher. It, it, the, although everything lives forever, as you know, especially on YouTube now. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, you know, you you. You can play a high school gym in Peoria and something happens and it lives for, you know, becomes. But the concept of WrestleMania is that every moment is etched in the history. Yeah. You know, it's relevant. Yeah. It's historically significant. It's the platform on which you look for the moments. Mm. So, yeah, it's. Uh, Would you say you spend a year building the story up to WrestleMania? Is that the. Yeah, my. my my big questions the past three weeks are all centered around what are we doing next year? Yeah. Because let's start telling that now. Yeah. Let's drop hints now that make sense now. I mean, I'm not even talking about during WrestleMania. I'm talking about going into WrestleMania. Is there something that can be said that we play back a year from now? And be and like they, oh yeah oh they're already God this is this is a dual WrestleMania you know it doesn't have I'm not just talking about Roman or Cody I mean it it yeah. could be with anybody yeah you know it could yeah. be what's the longest you can remember planting a seed for a story in advance me personally yeah Taz and Sabu and Tommy Dreamer and Raven and how long was that how long was multiple years we were doing things in the very first well. When we brought Sabu back, the idea was to build to the first pay-per-view of Sabu versus Taz. And it took years? Yeah. To, yeah we, I, I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't giving the match away until we, to, until we got on pay-per-view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No matter how many years it took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea for Tommy Dreamer versus Raven is that Tommy Dreamer would never beat Raven, ever. He would win every fight. He would win every war. He would win every chapter, but he'd never win a match. Yeah. The constantly redeemed babyface who who can get anything in the world except the thing he wants the most, which yeah. is the victory over the over, over the villain, yeah. you know, over his rival, over the 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 the, the other part of the love triangle. <laughs> it just just it was just so many. And from the day we started it, the whole concept was Tommy Dreamer never beats Raven. I wanted to hold it to our second pay per view so we could offer something on the second pay per view more than the first pay per view. Yeah, something interesting about in in other sports where there'll be a team that can beat everybody, but there's one team that might not be able to beat everyone else. But the you know, sometimes there it's uh the way the matchups happen allows someone to just be figured out. There's one like in boxing, there could be right. one guy who could always beat this guy. Right. But the guy who he beats can beat everybody else. John Jones for Daniel Cormier, you know it's 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 the great yeah but, the yeah but that guy's the best. No one could yeah but yeah. There's one thing yeah. You know it's just it's just that it it's just that one flaw in your arsenal. It's that one asterisk by your name. Yeah. 
You know, no, nobody's record is truly unblemished. Yeah, have we seen that in a wrestling story where there's the butt? Oh, of course, that, that, that's the whole idea. Mm. That, that was the whole idea of Tommy Dreamer and Raven. That was the whole idea of Taz and Sabu, you know. Sabu it was, was so, you know, uh, 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 suicidal, homicidal, genocidal that he could eat through anybody, that his violence was at such a level that it broke every taboo. No, no pun intended with the rhyming of the name Sabu. But but Taboo Sabu would have been a good gimmick. Um, <laughs> but the one guy that had his number was Taz. Yeah. The one guy that could counter him was Taz. Mm -hmm. The one guy that could survive him was Taz. Mm -hmm. And of course, Taz also would have his, yeah, butts in life. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it just, it, it, it I, I always found that that was the fascinating part of, of, of building a character that could come off impervious to the offense of anybody else but they'd always be that one guy that had his number yeah and they have to face that that fear that desperation that 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 knowledge that this one person is is the is the is the antidote to you and sabu was related to the sheik yes oh it was his nephew yes yeah sabu's mother was the sheik's sister hmm. how much do you know about the sheik do i yeah uh Pro, pro, probably more than most and and guaranteed not as much as i truly should mm. i mean I, I also know of his body of work as a promoter and 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 the way that, that that he ran the detroit territory so you know i know a lot about that mm -hmm. and and i know as a human being i know what i know through sabu and rob van dam who was also trained by the sheik i didn't know rob was tra trained by the sheik also. trained by the sheik and sabu yeah. What do you think is special about pro wrestling? What makes pro wrestling pro wrestling? You know, it, it's funny. I just realized that, that we've actually started. I just thought we're sitting here bullshitting. It's, that, it, it, we're just going to sit here and bullshit. It's so just so nothing Rick, changes. It, it's just so Rick Rubin. It's like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, good. I'm just, you know, strumming on this guitar. Okay, that's a take. What? No, I was, I was, just, I was just tuning the guitar. No, man, that was music. We're keeping it and we're releasing it. Magic, you know? It's just so Rick Rubin, just free form expression. And I realize now I'm being recorded. <laughs> um what, what, the que the question was what makes pro wrestling so special why is it so unique what's so special about it why do we love it there's an old expression that that, that a lot of parents lament over and that it's uh you learn everything you need to know in life in the first three or four years of your life and by the time you hit a teenager you spend way too much of your life rebelling against that knowledge you know I, I, I'm a single parent of two kids, so I get it. You know, it's, uh, you know, but when you're three years old, you know, clean up, clean up, Levy, you know, let's go clean up. And you make, you make it fun to clean up. And, you know, oh, you got to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Don't forget to wash your hands, you know. And you got to brush your teeth this many times a day and for this long. And, and, and you know, please and thank you cost you nothing, but they get you, so they, they buy so much goodwill for you. So it's really a matter of you just learn so much by the time you're four years old. And those are the basics in life. One of the things you learn when you're that old is to run out in the backyard or on the stoop or in the street and, and, and let your imagination run wild, you know? Uh, kids of my generation went into the backyard and they either played Batman versus the Joker or whatever Batman villain it was at the time, uh, or they played uh, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Th th those were the fantasies that kids 
of my generation lived out. And you'd go into your backyard or again on the stoop or here in Malibu on the beach, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and you'd play out those fantasies, you know, okay, I, I'm, I'm Batman. You're, no, 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 I'm, I'm Batman. You're the Joker, you know, and, and, and those were the big arguments. And that's pro wrestling. You get to see a, a living, breathing fantasy play out in front of your very eyes with characters that hopefully display a characteristic a a piece of their persona that you as the audience member can relate to, that it resonates with you, that you identify with, that there's something in that one particular performer that hits your soul and your spirit and you say, you know, I love being me, but if I could wake up in the morning as anybody else, I'd want to be that person. I'd want to be John Cena. I'd want to be Brock Lesnar. I'd want to be Roman Reigns. I'd want to be Matt Riddle. I'd want to be Becky Lynch. I want to be Ronda Rousey, Charlotte Flair, uh, whomever. That's who I want to be. That that person hits me. That that person makes me feel like like they know me. They're representing me. When same thing as being when you're four or five years old and you're in the backyard and. And you're, uh, you're cops and robbers, or you're Batman and the Joker, or, you know, it's just, uh, it's specifically designed to give a diverse approach to finding a character that people individually and en masse can relate to. How much do the real life people play into the characters that they are as wrestlers? You know, it's funny, you, you, you asked me that in a setting where we're not on video, and yet I'm sitting here in, in Malibu <laughs> wearing a suit with a tie and a pocket square Yeah, because I'm articulating on an industry of which, rightfully or wrongfully, I'm, I'm accused of having some product knowledge. And so to do that, I have to step into the garb of the wise man. So you become the wise man. Are you the wise man before you put the suit on? Did the wise man get out of bed this morning? Yeah, you know, that, that, you know that, that's funny. That, 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 that's a very interesting question to ask. And, and the reason why I say that is it, it's one of the very first things I teach anybody when it comes to the art of stepping into the character. Just to use Roman Reigns by example, if I would call up Roman Reigns, and, and, and this is one of those days where we are discussing the depth and the heights of, of the persona that he inhabits, I'll say, hey, what did you have for breakfast today? And he'll answer, and my next question will be, and what did Roman Reigns have for breakfast today? What did the tribal chief eat? And the answers may be different. Always. Of course they are. <laughs> They'd they'd have to be, they'd have to be, you know, some of us are blessed. I'm not one of them with born great acting skills, can cry on cue, can laugh maniacally when prompted, can be told to recite something in front of an audience and will memorize it like, like. A Latin American dictator, you know, giving giving a a, a four hour speech. The Miz is a, is is a is a tremendous actor. 
He really is. You know, and you can see his process. And he, you know, he rehearses his lines and he finds the, the manner in which he wants to deliver them. And if he were to fall down, God forbid, on the way to the ring, and again, God forbid, bump his head, get a concussion, the muscle memory of that script is so embedded into, into his head that even with an injury, he could recite it and not even realize that he's doing it. I'm not that good of an actor. I'm method. I'm method because that's the crutch I lean on. <laughs> because I'm I, I I'm not that in touch with my own emotions to summon them at will. I need something to take me there. We did a a thing a few years ago where Brock Lesnar turned on me. And I'm begging Roman Reigns to take me in. And I show up on TV to review this circumstance heading into WrestleMania with Renee Young, who's tremendous to play off. Oh, my God. The, the fact that she's not broadcasting the seventh game of the Stanley Cup or, or any other sport or Major League Soccer is, is a crime to their viewers. She's great. Love working with her. And so I'm tasked with taking this story forward that Heyman's life has completely crumbled. That Brock Lesnar's children, who are as Howard Hughes reclusive as Brock Lesnar is, are actually friends with my kids. That our families are intertwined. That our lives are, are together. That, that we envisioned riding off into the sunset from this industry together, you know, uh, the, the conquerors, the, the massive freakish once in a lifetime athlete and his Jew. <laughs> and, um, and of course my, my heart's been ripped out. So I didn't shave for a week and I did the classic 1970s Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, you know, story of I stayed up for like, like I, I, I deprived myself of sleep several days walking in and stayed up the night before, man. I, I walked into TV looking. You know, bloodshot eyes oh, and just te terrible. Up. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, I, I, it looked like I was on, Fantastic. I was on a real bender, man. Yeah. And, and, uh, Renee could see me, but, I, 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 I didn't want to go into the real shocker of it. So I had somebody sit in my chair for blocking purposes. I didn't want to sit in the chair yet. And I brought with me a suit. And it was the suit that I wore to my father's funeral. And I had not worn the suit since. And I, I asked them two minutes before we do this, and I only want to do one take. Tell me, and leave me alone. And uh, the, the 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 production guy came to me and he goes, two minutes." And I went, "Okay, cool. Keep keep Renee distracted until we're rolling, and she says my name." And I put on the suit, and it crushed me because all I could think about was my father's funeral and how desperately I miss him and I loved him and still love him and God what I would give 
to spend five minutes just talking with him. And I'm bawling, I'm weeping, I'm openly crying. And I get into the chair and I keep my head down because I don't want her, if she happens to glance in my direction, I want this to be shocking to her. I want to capture that shock. Three, two, one, she, and she says, and I'm here with, and when she says my name, I look up at her and I make direct eye contact with her and she gasps and she catches herself gasping and you see her try to get through the lines, but you see, she's looking at me like, oh my God, yeah. he, he, he's a wreck. It, 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 it made the piece hurt. All I had to do was just be upset and my story would be told. You'd get it from my demeanor and my tone and my tenor and my emotions. But her look sold it. Her look made it. Yes. Her reaction to my method is what did it. I'm not that good of an actor. Tell me the whole story of your relationship with Brock from the beginning all the way through <laughs> to the the Roman story because it's a great story. It's it's maybe the greatest story in wrestling. Well, I first saw Brock Lesnar when he won the NCAA Division One Heavyweight Championship in two thousand. I was still the owner of ECW, and of course, I'm looking at this specimen on television and i'm thinking my god this is if i were to sit down next to god and the devil and say okay we're gonna build what everyone fantasizes is the quintessential ultimate absolute definition declarative statement of what a professional wrestler is supposed to look like. This is the Bugs Bunny cartoon of the crusher. I mean, it's just, yep. What's that? Oh, that's a professional. Man, I wouldn't mess with him. You know, it's just, that's it. That's the look. And then the ferocity with which he wrestled and the strength that he displayed and the speed of a man that size, nothing about him was human. Never saw anything like it before. Nothing, nothing, nothing and no one. So WWE very wisely signs Brock Lesnar and they send him to Louisville to train. And he's a prodigy. He's never watched the industry, ever. Didn't grow up a fan. Didn't grow up watching Vern Gagne's AWA. Mm-hmm. Didn't grow up watching WWE with Hulk Hogan. Hulk didn't care. Wasn't his thing. So with absolutely no experience in the industry, he walks in and he's a prodigy. He can do anything. It takes a while for people to to learn how to navigate the ropes, how to understand the concept of center line from the middle of the ring. There's a lot of rudimentary fundamentals that most people need 
eight to 12 weeks just to learn. <laughs> and he's picking it up by the end of the afternoon. Within 10 weeks of just starting to train, he could put together a match. His learning curve was just that accelerated. It's, it's like one of those child prodigies at five years old that listen to Mozart, sit down at the piano with one piano lesson, just learning which key sounds like what, and plays Mozart. There's no explanation for it. But he also had the mental aptitude for it. I've met some truly brilliant human beings that have no concept of the choreography and the psychology of this industry. And I've met some people whose IQ is in the 30s who are like Rain Man, who literally, if you say to them, hey, uh, what's five plus five? It's going to, wait, wait, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's ten. Really? It took you that long to figure out five? You don't, you don't know just the end? No. Uh oh, I'm not that bright. But they could put together a 45 minute wrestling match and it'll be a classic. That's just one of the beautiful things about our art. And Brock is an artist. And those are the reports coming out of Louisville. And he's not getting called up to the main roster. And I couldn't understand what the delay was. And I'd seen him a couple of times. You know, they had Jesse Ventura come out to the ring with him in Minneapolis. Why, why are we not going with this? My God, he's, he's 24 years old. Let's go. 23 at the time. So they bring him to a TV. They're starting him on dark matches because he had enough and he left Louisville and he went back to Minnesota and he said, whenever you're ready for me, call me. There's nothing more for me to learn in Louisville. I'm ready to go. You don't want to use me. My contract's going to run up. I'm going to go find something else to do with my life. And finally, they decided to pull the trigger and they bring him for a couple of dark matches, which are the matches that happen before we go live on television or tape the actual show for broadcast. So we get a look it's at like a, It's essentially a rehearsal for the talent before they go on TV. Yes. Yes. Or like in the music industry, when, when, when someone goes in and like, like in, in New York, they do it at the Mercury Lounge or the Bitter Call End. Call it a showcase. A showcase, right. It's a showcase. Mm-hmm. You're right there. The cameras are there. We can rewatch it. You know, the, 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 the creative people are there. All the, all, the, all the people there that need to get eyeballs on you. So Brock does a dark match. And the next day he's doing another dark match. And all these old-time producers, they're going, you should be a Russian. You should just stand in the middle of the ring and let people bounce off you. Which, by the way, for someone who doesn't have the explosiveness of Brock Lesnar, the speed of Brock Lesnar, the, the, the agility of Brock Lesnar, the mobility of Brock Lesnar, is a wonderful, wonderful piece of advice for someone that looks like him. What was going to separate Brock from everyone else that even had massive size and density to them is that Brock Lesnar could move like freaking lightning. No one could move like him. No one. No, The explosiveness that he displayed from takeoff was just... It's terrifying. I've seen it now for 21 years. It 
frightens me every yeah, time. Just frightening. Fr if he's standing in the center of the ring and he decides to, to to launch himself and hit the ropes, he will hit that those ropes with such velocity from the center of the ring. You know, that's it's like zero to sixty in a second and a half. It's just it's it's it's, it's there's no one of that explosiveness and that speed. Yes, no one. Yes, no one. Yes, and I'll say in a lifetime of watching pro wrestling. I've never seen anyone, when they come out to the ring, when you're there, create an energy that's so scary. <laughs> in, in, it's, it, it gets very real, very fast, as soon as Brock makes his entrance, always. I was standing in the ring this past Monday. I don't know when this drops, so. Me either. Whenever this drops. <laughs> yeah. We are taping this on the Wednesday after WrestleMania which is two days after we were just at the crypto for Monday Night Raw. And I'm standing in the ring with Roman Reigns, who's an impressive individual, by the way. <laughs> Let's just state that for the record. I mean, this is not, you know, <laughs> this is not a slouch standing there. This is, this is someone that looks like a man, <laughs> you know, and because yeah. he is one. And I'm standing in the ring and Brock Lesnar's music hits and Brock walks out, you know, in, in, in his in his fight gear. And I look at Roman and I went, holy fuck, look at that, right? And I don't, I mean, just completely, because I'm, after all these years, I, I'm still not used to being out there watching him come at us. I'm used to being on the other side of that. I'm used to walking out with them, looking at the face of people going, holy fuck, look at that, <laughs> right? And Roman looks at me and he says, yeah, yeah, now you know what we all saw, right? And I just said, man, he is freaking huge. Holy shit, what, it's what so the funny. fuck? And of course, when I said that, I realized, you know, the cameras may be picking us up and I just say, my tribal chief. <laughs> and, 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 and he just looks at me and he just says, man, he goes, it just, it just never ceases to amaze me standing here watching him. And when he circles you like a shark, he says, you realize I'm in for a physical evening. <laughs> it's just, man, so all these old timers are giving him antiquated, draconian advice that if he was an opponent for San Martino in 67, I get it, but he's not. It's a modern era and the business is changing and it's changing rapidly. And the demands and the expectations of the audience are far different than they were back in the day of Waldo Von Erich or Crusher Verdue, um, or even Gorilla Monsoon, who has a 400-pounder, could probably have moved better than any other 400-pounder even on the face of the planet in the day, but that's not what he did. Yeah. He stood there, he looked massive, and he made San Martino bounce off of him until San Martino finally picked him up, slammed him, gave him a couple boots, punches, knocked him down, and beat him. So Taz brought him to me. Because Taz... <laughs> Taz drank the Kool-Aid back in the 1990s. He, uh, he, he came to ECW completely insecure about his ability to speak. <laughs> which, which is... 
which is one of the most ironic things in the world because he was one of the most convincing orators of the 1990s once he found himself. I mean, it, it, it would be like you stepping into the studio with System of a Down and Surge coming to you and saying, I'm, I'm just not confident in my, in my singing voice. What? You're, you're Surge, man. You, you, are you kidding me? No, I don't. I think I should play the drums. I, I don't think I should sing. No, you should sing, and Taz should cut promos. And uh, Taz came to ECW. He was barefoot, wearing fur, jumping up and down. He was the Tasmaniac, based on the Bugs. Again, we go back to Bugs Bunny. All roads lead to Bugs. All, all of course they do, and, and well, they should. Yeah. And uh, and uh, he, you know, he's the Tasmanian Devil, and he would do promos. And his promos would be Ooga Booga. Ooga Booga! Ooga Booga! Ooga Booga! Ooga Booga! It was comedy. And his wrestling was serious. And I mean, he could throw the suplexes, but he didn't, ha he was so insecure. He had no confidence in his speaking ability. And uh, as we were kind of morphing out of Ooga Booga Tasmaniac and trying to find a more realistic presentation, Taz was starting to stop with the fur and started to wear boots. We're humanizing him. And in the middle of this process, he suffered a broken neck in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was a match against Dean Malenko and Two Cold Scorpio, and Taz was teaming with Eddie Guerrero because I was getting him into that grappler portion of our show. The you know, Eddie and... Um, and Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit, two called Scorpio, you know. And uh, he braced for a power bomb and ended up in a spike pile driver and he broke his neck. So he was off. And the decision was made when he came back, he was going to be a UFC style fighter. And he was going to be the first wrestler that we weren't going for, for I quit, we were going for tap outs. Taz introduced the tap out to, to pro wrestling, that character. And the key to this was he was gonna have to talk on the mic. And we just found that that inner rage of his, that, that bitterness that he had about being five foot eight, 248 pounds in a big man's business. If you're not over six three, if you don't, if, if 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 you don't carry yourself like Barry Windham was carrying himself at the time, you're not even consideration. So, you know, Steve, Steve Austin, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, these were smaller WWE champions at the time. Uh, the 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 typical WWE champion was Sid, Kevin Nash. These were the guys with the size, mm -hmm. and Taz, who had tremendous talent and did have tremendous speaking ability, was so angry that a guy 5'8 would never even be, be considered. So we used that to our advantage. He talked about being 5'8. I'm only 5'8, but I will choke you out. Brother, I got a low center of gravity. You're up, you're up, you're up there breathing oxygen that's a lot thinner than, than, than what I'm breathing, and I'm, I'm going to choke you out. It's going to be easy for me to do it, and you're going to look over and go, who choked me out? That 5-foot-8-inch, 248-pound dude from the, from the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, New York, and people believed it. To the point where when Taz debuted in WWE, 
at the Royal Rumble in Madison Square Garden, which was the perfect setting for a debut. And the highlight of his entire WWE career, because it was all downhill from there, that Vince McMahon called me. <laughs> I was I was actually in the studio. We were editing. Uh, we were doing a Sunday edit on e for ECW. And Vince McMahon called me, and he says, do you mind if I ask what the fuck you're feeding these guys? And I said, what does that mean? I don't know. And he goes, what the fuck you're, pl you're planting in their fucking heads? I've heard of your fucking Kool-Aid before, but what the fuck? And I said, okay, what issue do we have here, Vince? Aren't you supposed to be running the Rumble today? And he tells me the story that Kurt Angle, now this is not Kurt Angle after fighting all the self-admitted addictions. This is not Kurt Angle with the gazillion injuries that he suffered putting on amazing performances as, as, as a pro wrestler, sports entertainer, WWE superstar. This is Kurt Angle with the exception of of the neck injury that he had going into the Olympics, and which was still four years prime removed. Kurt Angle. Oh prime man, healthy Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle. Yeah, health, legitimate milk drinking Kurt Angle at the time. You yes, know, yes. Kurt Angle, who maybe the only two people on the face of the planet that could hold their own with him in in in, in a shoot fight. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And Taz and, and Kurt Angle went up to Vince in the garden and said, um. Vince, what do I do if this guy shoots on me? And Vince had first thought it was a political question. Like, am I allowed to defend myself? Am I allowed to shoot back? Because I'm Kurt Angle and I'll tie him and his family and his friends and his neighborhood and all of Brooklyn up in knots all by myself while eating a sandwich and drinking a glass of milk because I'm Kurt Angle. And then Vince realized, no, he's really asking like, what happens if Taz shoots on me? Because I'll be in trouble. Because that's Taz. And, and and Kurt says, yeah, have you seen this guy in ECW? <laughs> Do you listen to him? That's unbelievable. And Vince thought Kurt was like, you know, just going, ah, yeah, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. And Kurt was like legitimately concerned. What would happen if Taz would shoot on him? Like, hey, I'm going to have to fight for my life out there with this guy. This guy's capable. That's unbelievable. That was the presentation of Taz. We Amazing. made him believe that he was that guy. Yes. When Taz cut those promos yes. on Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and Kurt Angle and Sid and the NWO and anybody else, and he cut those promos, he believed it. Steve Austin will tell you that when he stood face-to-face -face with Mike Tyson in the ring during that infamous moment, which to this day was the turnaround for, to me of the entire industry. And I mean, WWE already had the lead, but when that moment happened, there was never turning back. And Steve Austin will tell you that in his mind, when he came down that aisle, if Mike Tyson lost the plot and decided to get antsy with him, Steve Austin will tell you, I'd have whooped his ass. I'd have whooped. I was standing there. You know, when, that, when, when he looked at me and he had to, he did have beady eyes. I'd have whooped. I, what? I'd have whooped. What? I'd have whooped Mike Tyson's ass. Now, I think Steve will look back on this now and did his day and realize, no, he would not have whooped Mike Tyson's ass. But in that moment, he believed he could. And yeah. I filled Taz as a method actor. And a, and at that time, for me, a method director. I made him believe he could whip all their asses. And that when he said it on promos, he meant it when he said it. So, full circle, long story even longer, Taz brings Brock Lesnar to me. And Taz says, they're going to screw this up. Here's what Tony Gurria is telling him. 
Here's what this guy's telling him. And you're doing ECW at this time. You're nope. not a WWE. No, no, I'm in WWE. You're this in is, WWE. Yeah, this is 2002. Okay. You're yeah. Right. yeah. E ECW went out of business January 2001. I came to WWE March 2001. We did the whole alliance thing, ECW and WCW versus WWE. Uh, took myself off of television after Survivor Series, which was the, the blow-off battle for that. Because when I came to, and here, of course, is one of those paradoxes in life, you know. I came to WWE and my first, my first thing I said to Vince in coming in the door was, I don't want to be on television. I'm 35. I had my fun. I want to be behind the scenes only. And then the whole thing happened with, they fired Jerry Lawler's wife and Jerry Lawler quit. And I wasn't supposed to get into WWE until WrestleMania because I was too busy dealing with, with the ridiculous amount of legalities of what was the pending ECW bankruptcy. So I'm going into a personal bankruptcy and, and a corporate bankruptcy. And we'll talk about the whole ECW story later too because we, we have to talk about that. But And... I'm jumping into WWE and I, I cut my deal to come in behind the scenes and I get a call from Vince on, on a Tuesday and he says, are you aware that Jerry Lawler quit last night? And I said, yeah, I, I heard the whole story. I'm sorry to hear that. And he says, well, I'm going to need a little bit of a favor from you. And I said, well, I'm not really in a position to turn down a favor from you at this moment. My, my, my company's gone, I, I'm, I'm entering bankruptcy and you're offering me a lifeline in life. So the answer to the favor is yes, now please tell me what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and he says, need, 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 need you to start on commentary next Monday night. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm back on television. It's exactly where I don't wanna be. And then of course I realized, well, I get to play with Jim Ross a little bit. I always like being Jim Ross's color commentator. And you know, if, if I'm going to have to do anything in the public eye anymore, <laughs> replacing Jerry Lawler on Monday Night Raw is not a bad way to debut. Yeah. That's a pretty iconic position. Yeah. That's what today we would refer to as relevant. One of the most interesting things about pro wrestling compared to other sports is the idea of the heel announcer. And we'll, we'll get to that because it is, for anyone who doesn't watch pro wrestling, they, they wouldn't even understand the idea that there's a bad guy announcer. Yeah, because otherwise, what, what, what they found, and, and well, the first, the first bad guy announcer wasn't, wasn't uh, Jesse Ventura. He perfected it with Vince. And you could tell that Vince wanted him to be a star color commentator because Vince would throw him lob balls. I mean, just, you know, here it is, you know, bang out of the park, bang out of the, I mean, just, he'd set himself up for Jesse. Didn't mind doing it. Vince, back in those days, there was a, there was a weatherman in New York. His name was Lloyd Lindsay Young. And he was very famous because he would do shout outs to, to municipalities. Hello, Secaucus! Made an ass out of himself as a weatherman. And Vince used to love to refer to him, to anybody that would listen. You know, ever see that Lloyd Lindsay Young? God damn, I like him. You know why? Not afraid to make an ass out of himself. And he's branded himself. And back then, you know, in New York, the weathermen were uh, Frank Field and Storm Field, who, who 
to this day still do it in New York. I mean, these are these are iconic New York weathermen, people that New Yorkers have learned to trust with the weather, you know. To, and uh, and Lord Lindsay Young became the most popular because he had he had he had the shtick, he had the gimmick, and he didn't mind making them, you know, hello, Piscataway. And Vince would love it. So Vince would make an ass out of himself, setting himself up for Jesse's insults. But Jesse wasn't the first. Now, I'm sure there were others before this, but the one that showed us all it could be done was Roddy Piper in 1981 from the TBS studios in Atlanta with Gordon Soli. And Roddy Piper was a great heel commentator because he was so effective in the role. He added so much entertainment, so much of a fun perspective to it that the shill could never survive on their own again. It's a great action today, ladies and gentlemen, that you're watching in the ring with Mr. Babyface holding that headlock. And as you can see, the 15 members of our studio audience are enthralled with the majestic build that our babyface is displaying against this heated villain, the the masked Russian assassin number seven. And oh, it's a shoving, oh, and it's a shoulder block. And there'll be shoulder blocks in Marietta, Georgia tomorrow night. Be there, you know, and okay, those days are over. Now, now you had Roddy Piper on there, and Gordon Sully went on, and a, and a beautiful, a, a, a beautiful uh, move into a uh, into a leg vine, which puts the pressure on the calf muscle, and a little bit on the quadriceps, you know. And Roddy Piper, went, yeah, you know something when when this guy grabs the leg, ha ha. It, it, well, it's like you know, you, you ever rip a chicken apart, you know, with your own bare hands, man, you know? And you go, what the? What is he talking about? This guy's crazy, and I like him. And he's interesting, and he's making the broadcast far more flavorful. So, I I, I came in as the old commentator, and, and you know, and, and which and, and that was easy because number one, I'm an asshole, and and I love being an asshole to Jim Ross because he's from Oklahoma. I'm I'm just you know a Jew boy from the Bronx, you know. Then and I could sit there for you know for minutes comparing someone in the ring to me having you know a spiritual nirvana by by going to a deli in new york city at two in the morning eating a knish and an oki ain't gonna know what a knish is he's gonna ask you put barbecue sauce on it and, and i'm gonna lecture him that you know you know much you know as much about new york culinary experiences as you do about being a play-by-play -play announcer you know <laughs> and, and, and it's just so i i i it was easy because jerry lawler got along so well with jr on air they were a duo they, 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 there was a bromance going on. They liked each other, you know, and everything was so cute and funny with Jerry Law, you know, puppies, you know, everything. Oh boy, woo! -hoo! You know, and I was coming in as just an asshole. I was going to give the show a completely different feel, and I was going to take Jr. to the test because that's Jr. at his best when he's pushed. He get, he had become so comfortable with Jerry Lawler. He he could he could phone it in and still be ten times better than anybody else in the in the in the world. Mm -hmm. So I. uh I got out of that uh, at Survivor Series when, when we wrapped up the, the Alliance storyline. And again, I was, okay, I'm behind the scenes. I don't want to be on camera anymore. But by now, now by Survivor Series, it's uh, 2001. I'm 36. I'm like, I've had a good run as an on-air character. I'm just going to be behind the scenes now.
Well, by the time WrestleMania comes around, Vince has this idea of turning Chris Benoit heel. And I'd lost a ton of weight between Survivor Series and, and Mania time. One of my many journeys of weight loss. And uh, Stress-related or? Uh... No, I'm an indulger. I like to indulge in life. And I like to eat. And since we're sitting here barefoot on a couch, I mean, this is like therapy for me. I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. My mother was, my mother was in uh, Auschwitz and, and Bergen-Belsen. So growing up, watching her son eat gave my mother joy. So um, indulging in food was encouraged because it was something my mother couldn't do as a child. So watching her child do it was revenge for her. She grew up, watched, watched 13 of her cousins starve to death in the Ludge ghetto, watched uh, two grandmothers die of starvation, aunts, uh, so, you know, and then of course in Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, all she witnessed was, you know, famine and fa famine and starvation. How did she uh, make it out? By the grace of God. Yeah. Just you know, when when she was a, uh, she was liberated April fifteenth, nineteen forty five, uh, by the by the by the British Army, in Bergen-Belsen, and ended up in in the displaced persons hospital in Berlin, uh, with uh, typhus and typhoid near death was was told she may not make it and made it became a nurse there because there was no family to no, no family to find and you know until an uncle because the men had left the you know the the, the the men left poland uh they escaped through russia and the reason why was because in world war one the germans were civil occupiers they they they, 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 they there wasn't what happened? They were civil. They, they, they occupied Poland, and that, that, that's it. So the men left because if the men stayed, they'd have to fight. And if they fight against that army, they were going to die. But if they left and the Germans occupied, oh, look what happened in World War I. When it's on. over, it's over. Mm -hmm. The thought that they would kill women and children was unfathomable. So there was an uncle, Zelig. Zalig Scharf, who at the time was living in Winnipeg, which had a, a, a big community of, of uh, refugees from Eastern Europe. And uh, every year, Zalig would save up all of his money and go back to Poland and look for survivors of the family. And he couldn't find any. And after a couple of years, almost giving up hope, he had heard the tale of the march from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen when the Russians were coming in and, and coming through Poland and turning back the Nazis. And on a guess that maybe one of the family members was in this march from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen and maybe one of these family members survived. That maybe one of them ended up in Bergen-Belsen. He went to Berlin. And he went to the displaced person's hospital and he's researching the family name. And they said, well, we have, we have a, a Sulamita Sharf here. Oh my God, that's my niece. And he found her. Unbelievable. And, and he brought her to Canada. And uh, she went to Canada, you know, as a nurse there, 
went through the licensing and everything, and then through the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, immigrated to the United States and got a job as a nurse in the Bronx, where she met my father. And this is your mom, not your grandmother. Yeah, this is my mother. Wow. This is my mother. You know, I, I was born in 1965. The, 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 most, uh, the most significant event of my, of, of my childhood raising happened 20 years before I was born. Or actually, twenty-one. It was. It was actually. I mean, to her, the the, the moment that I, I think the last thing my mother ever saw in her consciousness uh, was the separation. That when they when, when they liquidated the ghetto, the Ludge ghetto, or Widge ghetto, you got on a train. The train took you to Auschwitz. It came off the train in Auschwitz. Those who were deemed uh, worthy of uh, fit enough for slave labor went to one side, and those who were deemed and not fit enough for slave labor went to the other. They, they were going to the gas chamber. Children, my mother's sister was seven, my mother was 14. Uh, children were not fit for slave labor. They went to the gas chambers. If you sent the child to the gas chamber, the mother went with them. Because once you kill the child, the mother is emotionally so finished they're not good enough for slave labor. So you killed the mother with the child. When my mother got off the train and then they, the SS officer pulled her to one side and separates them, separates her from her mother with the, uh, my mother's sister, the older Jews behind the fences are screaming to, to my mother. I can't even really call her my grandmother because I, that, that implies a personal connection for me to her. And and it it makes the gravity of the the murder of my mother's mother less if I say my grandmother because I, I don't own the right to that personal connection. My mother owns the right to that crime committed against her. And the older Jews are screaming to my mother's mother, "Give the child to an older Jew," because they're. Because they're 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 going to the, the older ones the elderly going to the gas chambers anyway. Give the child to an older Jew, save yourself. And she wouldn't, and so she went to the gas chamber with with my mother's sister, and that was the moment in her life that my mother never forgot. And I think everything that my mother viewed for her entire life was through that lens of the separation. I firmly believe that if your life flashes before your eyes right before you die, the last thing my mother ever saw was August nineteen forty four, the separation. So my weight <laughs> is, is, is a factor is of- Is a celebration of her life. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, well, yeah, as a kid- All of their lives. I learned, yeah, because I learned nothing about nutrition as a kid. I just didn't. I indulged. And, and I had a metabolism as a kid to burn it off. And then as my metabolism slowed down in my 20s, I, I wasn't prepared. And then it's been, a, it's been a lifelong journey of trying to understand nutrition that I never learned as a kid. So it's not my second nature. It's not my instinct. My instinct is to indulge. Yes. So I lost a bunch of weight <laughs> going into WrestleMania 18, which was 2002. And I was going to end up managing Chris Benoit. And then the whole thing happened with Taz bringing Brock Lesnar to me. And when Taz said they're going to screw this up, and I realized, man, that's, we screw this up. This is someone that he's a, he's a life he's a lifetime, and he's a lifeline for WWE. And when Vince brought me in, and he asked me, he says, "What do you think will be the greatest contribution 
you can offer our company, because he never would call it my company. It's our company. And if you sat there in a room with Vince and you said, you know, Vince, I got a great idea for your company. Well, it's not my company. It's our company. You know, and that's, that, that, was his, that, that was his mindset. Or, or at least his Kool-Aid. A little bit of both, maybe. But definitely his Kool-Aid. <laughs> so he said, what's the greatest contribution you could make to us? And I, and I said to him from the beginning, finding, grooming, developing the next big thing. You have Austin. You have The Rock. You have Triple H. You have The Undertaker. I mean, what, what, what a crew there was back in 2001. But boy, what we don't have is the next big thing. Who's that next one with lightning in a bottle? Who's, who's the next one that's going to set the world on fire? Who's the next guy we can hang our hat on? Who's, who's the guy that's going to be the poster boy for WWE that when, he, that, that when we put him up on a screen, people go, whoa, yeah, that's that WWE guy. You know? So I, I went into Vince and I, I said, uh, I, you know, Taz brought me Brock Lesnar. Oh, yeah, keep an eye on him. I want to know what, what you think of him. Well, I'll tell you two things. Number one, I think he's the next big thing. And number two, we are, we are screwing this up. How are we screwing this up? And I started telling him what the advice was. And he goes, oh, goddamn, Paul, get involved in this right now. All right, you want me to produce him? Yeah, you take over. He's yours. Okay. So I started lining up his matches and I started, you know, here's what I want you to do. And this is, you know, and here's how I want you to display it. And I put together a couple of matches of his. Just, it wasn't even, it was two that week and maybe, I think maybe two the next. And the opponents were the same. Spike Dudley and Funaki. Because I knew they would, they would make him look like what he needed to look like. And the night before Mania, Vince comes to me and he says, I'm not going to put you with Benoit. I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm not on television. That's great. I didn't want to go back on TV. I was like, okay, that that's great. Uh, thank you. All right, I found I found peace in my ability to pull out of the public eye. He says, I'm going to put you with Brock Lesnar, and I just said, bingo. Okay, money. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you just gave me a completely new life. Yeah, because I knew. Oh my God, you want me to talk for this guy? Okay, this is the easiest job in the world. <laughs> Then there was the question of, do, do we debut on Mania? And the decision was made, no. Start him the day after Mania and let his first Mania be in the main event. A year later. Wow. And that was supposed to be for the title, but we fast-tracked that. We got the title on him by SummerSlam. He was just, we were just moving. And, uh, and, and Dwayne Johnson was going off to Hollywood, so just the timing was perfect for us. And, and Steve Austin had left. So it was, wow, we were going to anoint the next big thing. So the first promo that I did with him, I, I called Brock the next big thing. And we were on the jet that night. And Vince turned to me and he goes, what'd you call him? I said, hey, I, I called him the next big thing, Brock Lesnar. And Vince that's terrible. <laughs> Why would you call him that? Well, because it's the next big thing. It's a terrible name. Why would you stick that on him? Oh, God, people are going to vomit all over that. And thank God, by the next week, there were signs in the crowd, the next big thing, the next, like it had caught on. And people in the production meeting were saying, you know, yeah, the next big thing, the next big thing. Brock Lesnar is the next big thing. And JR had written on his notes, you know, Brock Lesnar, the next big thing. 
And Vince started to realize, oh, oh, you know what? Okay, maybe this is catcher than I thought it was. So he said, oh, I'm going to give you one more chance to get that thing over, you know, and don't, don't screw this up. You know, okay, I won't. And I built the whole promo about Brock Lesnar being the next big thing. And they let me continue on with that. In the meantime, I'm starting to get to know this beast. And uh, he's, he's a fascinating, fascinating human being. He's very much like Sam Walton. He's a farm boy. And he's a farm boy from piss poor Webster, South Dakota, that would offer to go and milk the neighbor's cows or pick their corn or whatever farm people do of which I am not well-versed. Like one once Brock called me up, he goes, I'm combining. I go, wow, oh, you must be in your element. That's wonderful. And I'm sitting there going, what the fuck is combining? I don't know what the fuck combining. No idea what it is. No idea. It's like if I said to him, I'm davening today. Oh, that's great. What's Paul doing? Some Jewish thing. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I have no idea. So he used to go to the neighbor's farm and, 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 do, and do chores for lunch. Didn't want money because... The place to buy food is way too far away. But to be fed lunch, he would do chores. This was a not a wealthy farm guy. This broke as broke could be with, you know, a lot of brothers and a sister and, you know, a lot of mouths to feed in the Lesnar household and all of the kids, large, large carnivores, you know, uh, you know eaters uh, with appetites, so, so he didn't really excel as a student at the University of Minnesota. He was there because he was an athlete. But somehow, this farm boy, without much of a formal education, is not only one of the most brilliant choreographers that you'll ever meet, he's one of the savviest, most instinctual, most ruthless businessmen, and I've known a lot of people like that, and I'd put him up against any one of them. He's amazing. His timing of when to strike, of when to leverage, of when to renegotiate, of how to pit companies against each other, is that of the best litigator, the most brilliant agents or managers I've ever been exposed to. Top notch. And I've seen him in a room negotiating with Vince McMahon, who's not bad at it, I might add. And he matches. He's great. He's a brilliant human being. And he speaks, and my father was this way. My father was a fascinatingly eloquent man. And when he spoke to juries, he spoke so that every layman could understand every word he was saying. If you're a Harvard business grad, you'd understand him. If you're on the street, on a corner, and you're living in a box, you could understand him. My father could talk to a jury, and every, and every member would understand him. Brock Lesnar talks business, and it's so simple. He 
gets to the core of the issue that in music terms, you, you understand the riff. You get, you get the message from him. And he, he doesn't have to articulate it in these big, long words. Do you think it's based on confidence in himself? Is that where it comes from? You know, it's funny. I've in all these years, I've, 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 I've never tried to understand where it comes from. Mm -hmm. That's it's a very intriguing question. Yes, he, he has a, his self confidence is obviously there. I mean, you know, you all you have to do is look in the mirror and realize makes sense. <laughs> no, we make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's also a very alpha male thing. And of, of, of the alpha male species <laughs> on our planet, he's, you know, you know, you're the thing he's superhuman. Well, he's super alpha. Yeah. Uh, so he's a uh, woof. He's a, uh, he's, he's just, he's just a different creature. So you get to talk to him and you realize, okay, I'm supposed to be the smart one here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the guy with all the labels that apply to intelligence or creativity or everything else. <laughs> I got a lot to learn from this guy. And I still do to this day. I still learn from him every day that I talk to him. So when we first got put together, I was fascinated by him, you know, and he's asking me great questions about positioning, how he holds himself when to make eye contact with the audience, different psychological questions about the presentation, larger than larger than larger than life personas that appeal to the masses yet make it personal to every individual in the crowd. Just real probing questions about the art of it all. And one would hope because even at 36, I, w I was now a veteran, you know, and I'd owned my own company. I'd made my reputation as a creative force. And you'd think that I'm the mentor, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the sensei, I'm, I'm the guide in, into our world, into our culture. And meanwhile, what nobody understood was I was learning more from him than he was learning from me. Just being around him just every day, such a lesson. Those are the best collaborations. Yeah. It really is collaborative. Everyone involved plays a role in it being what it can be. And we all can, we each contribute whatever it is that we have to contribute. Yeah. But you never know where it's going to come from. Right. You never know. Right. Right. So we're on a plane to England. <laughs> we're doing a, we're doing a, 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 a British based pay-per-view and we're sitting together and okay, well, we got a, we got a long flight ahead of us. Let's get to know each other. And I asked him, where do you see yourself in five years? What do you see yourself in 10 years? And the answer from any young guy is always the same. Main eventing WrestleMania. Millionaire. And his answer was, don't know where I'll be, but I will have bought my parents' farm and given them a much more comfortable life. And I'll figure out the rest from there. And blindsided me the appreciation that he had for his parents my, my parents didn't need me to buy buy them off of a property that was you know f f uh, b below poverty level I, they did fine on their own but I, I i always wanted to do something for them i always wanted to do something special for them i always wanted them to know how much i loved them i always wanted them to know how much i appreciated them so to hear him say that which was not the answer I was expecting at all. 
And then he reaches into his pocket and he shows me a picture of a, of a sonogram. And he says, and I'm about to be a father. My girlfriend is, I think she was eight, eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah, my girlfriend's, you know, we're, we're a couple weeks away. I'm going to have a baby girl. Don't tell anybody. I don't want them knowing how they can hurt me. I'm not telling anybody yet. I'll let them know when it's time. And the funny thing was, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant with my first child, who was my daughter, Azalea. And I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want them to know where they could hurt me. And I said, well, let me show you a picture. And there we both were. Wow. Months away wow. from both being first-time fathers. Incredible. Both having baby girls. Incredible. And both keeping it to ourselves because we understood leverage is leverage. And, oh, well, he has to feed a child. We don't have to give him that much. He's dependent on us. Instead of, well, he's single. He has no children. He can walk. He can stay home and not care. Big, big leverage difference. So we bonded over that immediately. Love and appreciation of our parents and about to have our first child each. And he realized that as much as I'm a living, breathing, walking gimmick, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm the shtick come to life, that I'm very rooted in family. And I'm very much about that. And I realized that this beast this specimen, this, this super athlete that sits next to me, it's all about family. It's all about the legacy of his parents and providing for the future and passing it down. And I realized as different as we are, and we couldn't be more different at the core. At the human level, you're, you're the same our spirits were aligned Yeah, that I understood him and that he understood me. And from that day forward, I think I'm the only person for years outside of his brothers or his father. I think I'm the only man that Brock Lesnar felt comfortable saying in front of other people, I love you. That's not an easy thing for Brock to say to anybody. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not easy for him to say to a man. It's just, it's not his nature. Mm -hmm. But Brock Lesnar would say it to me in front of other people, you know, and I'd say it back to him, obviously, because oh, who would want to offend him? <laughs> but so. When did, when did he go from the next big thing to the beast? As soon as he won the title. When he won the title, the, the concept was the next big thing has arrived. And, he, and that was within the first year, you were saying? Well, within the first six months. Unbelievable. And we debuted at the, the end of March or the beginning of April. I don't remember the date. Uh, it was April because I started, started in March, and we were five weeks away from Mania. So it was April. Started in April. Then there's May, June, July, August. Four months, four months into his tenure in WWE, he, he beats The Rock clean in the middle of the Nassau Coliseum at SummerSlam for the title. So the next big thing had arrived, and then, now he's the beast incarnate and displaying it and going into hell in a cell against the undertaker. I mean, just 
The fast track on him was was, but the fast track on him was explosive because he was so explosive. Yes, and again, we had just lost Austin. Yes, it was the conditions. E everything was set for this to happen. Yeah, perfect storm. Yeah, and then the rocks went off to Hollywood. We need a centerpiece. We need a star. We need the next big thing, and it was Brock Lesnar. And you know, since then we were just bonded. It was just you know, we, we we've. Even when we disagree, I understand his perspective. And even, even when he doesn't agree with mine, he sees where I'm coming from with it. I, I, I've, I've never once just- You respect say, each other. Oh, I, I respect him. I, I love him. I admire him. I have such admiration for, for him. I mean, just, again, his, his, his hyper-intelligence, his instincts- his instincts, his business instincts, his life instincts. He's just and and a, a fascinating human being, you know. So when he left WWE, uh, you know, we, and why did he leave? Because he he saw the cap. Because they came to him with a ten year deal, at more money than they ever offered anyone in the history of the company with increases every year for 10 years at the time with the exception of the deal that they had offered Bret Hart that they had a poll because they were losing the Monday Night Wars this was the longest deal that was being offered in WWE and for by far the most money and he's sitting there with a 10-year contract in front of him and all these financial planners are saying and of course we're going to invest in, in in this and it's going to you're going to beat the market by 6 points and you're going to put this in in in, tre in treasury bonds and 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 you know and then this country has bonds that are very secure and they're insured and they pay 20%. And, you know, and, and at the end of this 10 years, you can retire and your children will never have to work and your grandchildren will never have to work. And this is how much you, you if you live to 92, you can spend this much money per week and never touch the principal. And he understood exactly how much he could make. He saw the cap. He saw the ceiling. And though for a poor farm boy, this was money that he never dreamed of in life, once he's faced the rea with the reality of, I know exactly how much I'm going to make 10 years from now, and I'm envisioning more. But they're not going to give me more, because this is more than they give anybody else. So if this is all I can make here, here isn't enough for me. And he decided, I'm going to be worth a lot more to these people if I leave, go out, become a bigger celebrity on the outside world, and come back as that celebrity than if I'm the homegrown product of Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. You're only worth as much as the other guy will pay you. There were no other guys in this business. So he had to go outside the business. So the first move was football, even though he never played a down in his life. And of course, on his way to trying out for the Minnesota Vikings, having never played college ball, never played high school ball, <laughs> probably never even touched a football in, you know, on the farm. That's just not what they did in, 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 in rural 
Webster, South Dakota. He decides to go to the Minnesota Vikings training camp and try out. Before this happens, he flips a motorcycle in Minneapolis. Cracks his pelvis, tears his groin, breaks his jaw. They want to wire his jaw shut, which means he can't eat, can't keep the nutrition going, can't keep the bulk on. To, and shows up injured to the Minnesota Vikings training camp. They know he's injured. They know he has a broken pelvis and a torn groin and God knows what else the injuries were at the time or displaced, whatever the injury was. I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I've embellished it over the years, but, but he, he, he was fucked up. <laughs> he was really fucked up. And uh, he runs the quarter mile and the hundred yard dash in Olympic qualifying time. Not, not just best of the team, not just best recruit they've ever seen. If he were to try out for the Olympics in track and field at 295 pounds, he is running injured, injured. He's running because he's so explosive. He's running these, these numbers in Olympic qualifying time, you know, like, like, like the nine foot tall guy who's, you know, every stride is, is, is 25 feet. Uh, you know, and, and that's why he's such a, you know, who's nine feet tall and, you know, 112 pounds. Yeah. And he's the Olympic gold medal track star. And those are the numbers that he's putting in at 6'3", 295. And he's the last guy cut from the team, you know, and, and they want him to go to European football. And he goes, nah, I'm not doing that. No, I'll fight. I'm a, you know, I was, I was a wrestler when I was five. I, I won the NCAA division one heavyweight championship. I'm pretty good at that. There's some disciplines I got to learn, but I'll put together my own training camp and I'll make it about me. And I'll, 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 I'll take my freakish super athleticism and I'll take on the best. And so he did. And in his, was his fourth fight? Uh, he did, he did the one K one fight. Then it was Frank Mir, Heath Herring, then Randy Couture. Third, third UFC fight, fourth professional MMA fight. He beats the greatest heavyweight of all time, Randy Couture. Standing up. Knocked him out. Knocked him out. It, it wasn't, wasn't a grappling hold. Wasn't he took him down to the canvas and rode him for three rounds, or now it would be five. He knocked out Randy Couture to become the UFC heavyweight champion. And he always kept his juke close to him. You know, we were doing digital. We were looking for projects. We wrote his book together. And we were always close. You know, uh, he, uh, we were always there for each other. I was there from, you know, through all his battles with diverticulitis. He was there for me uh, when, when, when my mother passed away. You know, we, we were just there. We we're just very, very close. We just, uh, there was just an understanding between the two of us, just, just a bond. And a bond happened on that airplane. When we both realized the thing about each other that was so close and dear to to ourselves. So now let's talk about the streak because that's a high point in the Brock Lesnar story. Tell me why the streak is such a big deal. Well, that's dictated by the audience because the audience became fascinated by it because the audience became obsessed with it. So because, championships get won and lost, but the streak goes on. It, oh, it, that, that was the Holy Grail victory. That was more important than any title. That was more important than any championship. Because I think the general consensus would have been the Undertaker was going to retire with the streak intact. 
I imagine everybody thought that. Yes. I think Undertaker thought that. Yeah. He was willing for it not to be. Yeah. But I think he, I think there came a time where he started to believe, hey, you know what? Why not? I'm going to be the exception that defines the rule. Yes. Those people forget who Vince McMahon is. He is going to want to return on that investment. It's just that simple. Uh, Vince will phrase it as there comes a time you have to give back. Okay. I buy that. I'm a subscriber to that theory. I also understand that Vince invested heavily into that streak. So for 21 years. Well, more than 21 years, 21 WrestleMania matches. Because okay. it was 21 WrestleMania matches over 25 years. I see. So in over 25 years, The Undertaker did not lose a match at WrestleMania, the Super Bowl of the year, undefeated. Undefeated. And not only did he not lose, he always won. And he took on all of the best. He took on every every major player over those years. A murderer's row of heavyweight Hall of Famers from Jake the Snake Roberts to Superfly Jimmy Snuka to Ric Flair to multiple matches with Triple H to two legendary matches with Shawn Michaels. Unbelievable. The, uh, the, the victory number 21 which was CM Punk, which was a, a tremendous match. I was in Punk's corner for that at MetLife Stadium, which to me was the setup for Brock in hindsight. But uh, yeah, it was, what a murderer's row. <laughs> what, 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 a, what a roster of, of, of greats that, 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 that he went through, uh, and deservedly so. I and mean, considering The Undertaker's place in the industry, the idea of him retiring with the streak intact is not an unrealistic idea. It's it it's it actually seems like that's obviously what was going to happen. If this was anybody else's promotion, I would suggest Undertaker himself and anybody else observing would have a right to feel betrayed by the notion after a while that you would stop this that you would end this that you would take this away that 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 you would end the streak that that the streak would not be retired with the undertaker in, intact but the fact that it's Vince McMahon and just and the fact that it's Brock Lesnar that's a big piece see that's to me that's always the argument yeah um, if it wasn't Brock Lesnar right it couldn't have happened no no correct it it it, it had to be the right guy I thought when we were going f with Punk versus Undertaker and we had done, and Paul Bearer had, had just passed away and we had done the way out of the box and way over the line story on television that we laid out the Undertaker and then we poured the ashes of Paul Bearer out of the Undertaker's urn onto the Undertaker which was just the heaviest thing we could think of doing. I was like, okay, if there's a guy that could be anointed as a top tier star, if there's someone that could become equal to Cena at this point in time, the, the macho man to Hogan, the rock to Steve Austin, 
a clear one and one A that if we give Punk this victory, we've established someone for the next 20 years as a star. And I thought the case could be made for that. CM Punk was ready to beat The Undertaker. In Vince's mind and a lot of other people's minds, and most likely in Taker's mind, Phil Brooks was not going to get that victory. CM Punk, yes. Phil Brooks, no. That was their decision. That was their judgment. But Brock Lesnar going against the streak? The moment Vince came to us and said, hey, here's what I have in mind for Mania, when he said Brock versus Undertaker, first thing in my mind was, oh, my God, we're getting the streak. I didn't see it any other way. I couldn't fathom it any other way. Did Vince see it that way? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. No way. No. Why would he? Uh, you think up until the time that it was decided that Brock would take the streak, in Vince's mind, The Undertaker would retire with the streak? No. You don't think so? No. It's not Vince's nature. Okay. It's just not. Okay. I'm going to get something out of this. Yes, yes. I, inv I, I, I invested this much into it. Yes. And I want something out of it. Yes. He just never saw the time yet where he needed it. Yes. And that was something that was going to be pulled when he needed it. Would he have let The Undertaker retire at a SummerSlam or a Survivor Series mid-year and right off into the sunset, oh, yeah, yeah, beautiful. And we're going to keep you on retainer. We'll cut a merchandising deal with you. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you active in some way that, that you can make, you can make a, a living and, and, and a handsome one at that. And we still have the benefit of the intellectual property and everything. But part of the reason why Vince would do that is, oh, this is a great WrestleMania for you to come out of retirement and defend the streak. And by the way, I found the person to beat you. I don't care if Undertaker was 85 years old at the time. If, if, if he's alive, if the dead man is alive, so to speak, then the streak is exploitable. And if it's exploitable, the promoter in Vince McMahon wants to exploit it. That's what we do. When you're lying on the floor listening for, the, for, the, for that magical moment in music where, where it hits, and you don't need to be up at the board. You don't need to have the, the earphones on because you're lying on the floor like a kid who's listening at home for the first time that song come on the radio and you go, my God, uh, I don't know what song that is or who does it, but I, I need to go buy that piece of music. When, 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 when you find that sweet spot, you know that you know that it's there. And that is in that moment when you go, that's it. That's the moment. No more takes. Don't sing that song again. Wait till it comes out. You'll be happy because I'm happy. I heard it. It was there. And it will resonate with, with, with kids across the world or adults across whomever. The audience will buy into it. You are at that moment exploiting the art of the performer in the studio that hit the note, hit that music, hit the line, hit the vibe, hit the verse that you were seeking. We're all ex we're exploiting each other's talents. We're exploiting each other's artistry. We're exploiting each other's gifts, and Vince will look to exploit that, and he would and he would look to exploit the streak.
So did I ever believe that Shriek was going to remain intact? No. This is very interesting to hear you say this because uh, we think of wrestling as a uh, a predetermined thing. And I guess you are talking about it being predetermined. Yes. But a different predetermination than the powers that be might assume is going to happen. My attitude with Brock Lesnar always was predetermined or unscripted. The finish of the match is always the same. The finish is what Brock is going to allow it to be. That if Brock decides he's going to win, there's not a being on the face of this planet that's going to stop him from that victory. And I'm not just limiting it to human beings. <laughs> it's just, I don't care. What so all of the normal rules of the game don't apply to Brock. None, none of them. It's, it's, he's, he's Brock Lesnar. He's, yeah. He doesn't fit in. Yes. And he's not supposed to fit in. Yes. And that's why he's such a huge box office attraction in anything that he does this many decades into it. Because he's not like everybody else. This boy is special. What year was the streak? 2014. Okay. So, And it's WrestleMania 30. Yes. And it's the first one on the WWE Network. So there's every reason to do something truly historical. And here's the thing. Brock Lesnar is supposed to be the exception to every rule. We're not supposed to be one of many. We're supposed to defy convention. So, is Brock Lesnar the zero and 22 and zero? Or is Brock Lesnar the one and 21 and one? And subsequently, once you give him that, doesn't he become more important to beat than any champion? Doesn't the victory over Lesnar become the holy grail isn't lesnar defending the laurels the quote unquote title of 21 and 1 because isn't the new chase to become the one that beat the one in 21 and 1 so essentially brock becomes the streak Brock becomes the successor to the streak, becomes the holy grail, becomes the victory no man can attain, and becomes the embodiment of the impossible mountain to climb so that when someone climbs that mountain, when someone beats Brock Lesnar, they are instantly made in the same way that Brock Lesnar is instantly made the moment the referee's hand hits three at WrestleMania 30, signifying Brock had conquered the streak. And we had someone in mind to be the next big thing, the company's next big star, the guy that would pull the wagon, the successor to John Cena, the person to become the one who beat the one in 21 and one. We had someone in mind at that time. Even at that time? Yes. That's unbelievable. Do you know who that person was? Who was that person? Roman Reigns.
And it just so happens that's what happened. Yes. Well, at WrestleMania 31, it was Brock versus Roman Reigns. When Brock had beaten John Cena in L.A. at what is now the crypto, then the Staples. Yes. In shocking fashion. Yeah, brutal fashion. Yeah, super- I, I, don't think, I don't think Cena got in one offensive move. He got in one. He, he, got, his whole, he got his finishing hold on Brock, and Brock broke it, powered out of it, and, 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 and threw him around like, like a rag doll. 16 suplexes. Suplex City. And uh, I was at that, and it was uh, a shocking, shocking. It shock, the the room was no one could believe what we were seeing. The, the, a thrashing of 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 the top star in the industry. The idea was to be as shocking as conquering the streak. It worked. Credit to Brock Lesnar and to John Cena. Yeah. Wow. So now Brock's the unbeatable champion. Walking into WrestleMania where just the year before he attained the impossible victory over The Undertaker. He's the one in 21 and 1, defending the title against the one guy who matches up against Brock Lesnar, Roman Reigns from The Shield. And just when you think Roman Reigns is about to win, his former partner from The Shield, Seth Rollins, cashes in money in the bank, steals the match and the title from both Brock and Roman Reigns. Which was also incredible, and I was there for that one. Heist of the century. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Which creates a whole bunch of new matchups. So the, the impossible victory for Roman Reigns is delayed for a another time with hopefully bigger box office and, and, and more proceeds and more of a boost to Roman when he finally can demonstrate his ability to conquer the conqueror. Let's talk about when Roman Reigns becomes a Paul Heyman guy. <laughs> I've kind of always looked at it like Paul Heyman became a Roman Reigns guy. Okay. <laughs> it's uh we we always flirted with it. Brock and I always flirted with it. Roman and I always flirted with it. First of all, I have an enormous history with his family. The the very first time Brock and I confronted Roman Reigns on television was the day after the blizzard in in the Northeast that Monday Night Raw was snowed out and we had to do it from the studios in Stamford because the the rumble had been in Hartford and Roman had won the rumble. He was going to go against Brock for WrestleMania 31. And I went up to Roman with Brock at my side and I shook his hand and I said, I'm sure you know I've known your family longer than you've known your own family because I've known his family since before he was born. When I was 15 years old, I would ride at times to Allentown in Hamburg, Pennsylvania to what was Vincent James McMahon's WWF television tapings for superstars of wrestling and all-star wrestling, and I would ride with Afa and Sika. Sika being Roman's father, Offa being Roman's uncle. And at times, they were breaking in Offa's oldest son, Big Sam, Samu, Sam Anawai, and he was learning the business, and I'd ride with all three of them. And and this is when they were all living in Hamden, Connecticut, which was the the, the center of the entire territory. Whether you're going to Maine, whether you're going up to Presque Isle, Maine, Portland, Maine, Bangor, Maine, uh, New Hampshire, Boston, all the way down to Capitol Center, Washington, D.C., that was that, that that was the breadth 
of of the of the territory, Vincent James McMahon's territory, the WWWF then WWF, and this is Vincent's Vince McMahon's dad. Yes, yes, Vince Senior, then known as Vince Senior, because yeah, Vince doesn't like juniors. He hates like Floyd Mayweather doesn't want to be called Junior. Vince doesn't want to be called Junior. Well, my father was Vincent James McMahon. I'm Vincent Kennedy McMahon. I'm not a junior. My middle name is different. <laughs> it's very, Ray Mysterio was not allowed to be Ray Mysterio Jr. Ray Mysterio. He doesn't like juniors. It makes you less than. Yeah. You, are, you are automatically second. Yeah. I don't like that. Yes. I go for first. I promote firsts. So I'd ride with Offensika, and I'd learn the business from Offensika, and I had been endorsed by a lot of members of the locker room. A lot of a lot of, a lot of the older guys liked me because I had such respect for the business. Because if they would if they would test me, if they'd ask me a question, you know, about what I saw, my answer would always be, "Well, I can't do that." And even if I had the physical ability to do it, I don't know if I'd have the balls to do it every night a hundred times a night in the ring. I, I had such respect for what they did. And the tolls it must take on their body, and I always, I always articulated on that, even at 15 years old. That a lot of the, a lot of the old timers respected that, and this was a time when it was very difficult to break into to, to the inner circles of the business, let alone at 15 years old. You know, the old stories of Hulk Hogan tried to try out for the business, and Hiromatsuda broke his leg. You know, let's see if the kid comes back. Let's see how bad he wants it. This is what they did. They, they would, they would beat people up who wanted to get inside the business to see if you had the desire, the passion to come back. Say, okay, thank you, sir, let's do that again. Maybe this time let's not break my arm, my leg, rip out my eyeball, bite my nose, you know, whatever, whatever the do you had to pay was. And I'd been endorsed by, you know, like a couple of the old timers, you know, Randy Orton's dad, Bob Orton, like me, and Greg Valentine, and Don Morocco, and of course, Lou Albano and Fred Blassie and the Grand Wizard. And then I'd walk in, you know, I'd come into some dressing rooms, you know, often seek and go, hey, this is this kid over here with the camera. He's all right. He's with us. Oh, shit, he's with Offensika. Yeah, don't mess with the kid. He's with Offensika, you know. And, and not only not mess with the kid, but you know what? If Offensika liked this kid, he has, to, he has to be offering something. He has to be respectful of the business. Hey, he's with Offensika. He's all right. Mm -hmm. So I had known Roman's family for so many years. And one could tell that this was a natural matchup for Brock Lesnar. This, this was macho to Hogan. This was rock to Austin. This was just the rivalry, the feud, the, the two that would go down in history intertwined and together. We just knew it. They just matched up so well. So Roman and I had talked about it because Roman always, much like Brock, understanding the cap of his money in 2004, Roman understood the cap of the big dog as a personality. Roman understood that the presentation of the big dog Roman Reigns, as much as he could make it his own, was always going to be the corporate structure produced this talent, this superstar in their vision of the top guy in WWE. And the audience was well aware of that. Could smell it from a mile away. Yeah. I'll even reference a piece of music that Rick Rubin didn't produce. George Michael 
Freedom 90. That's Roman Reigns. The whole thing about George Michael singing, they wanted my eyes this color. They wanted me to sing this way. This, this is how the labels wanted me to present me because that was the marketing, that was the exploitation of my intellectual property. But as an artist, I want the freedom to, to, to soar or sink on my own with my own merits with my real colored eyes, with the way that I really look and dress and present myself and approach my art and music. Roman Reigns always had a vision of something past the big dog. But he was still too young and he had not been- How many years was it between the shield breaking up and how long was the big dog post shield up until the Heyman guy. Big Dog's single push came 2014 uh, was the streak, 2015. And the tribal chief was born in August 2020. Five years. Five years. Yeah. So five years of wars, five years of, of fights, five years of matches with the big show and and Braun Strowman and, and all the others and WrestleMania main events against Brock Lesnar. But the perception was, I'll tell you as a fan, I really enjoyed this shield. And post shield, I was not into Roman during the big dog era. You could feel this inauthenticity. I don't think Roman Reigns would argue with you at all on it. That comes. I guarantee you he wouldn't. And the fact that it turned on a dime in one interview and has been full steam ahead ever since, it's a shocking thing to witness. Again, there's a common denominator with Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Roman Reigns is a fascinatingly intelligent human being brilliant i love the fact <laughs> that even rick rubin who can look at a creative process in any genre and at least find something that you can say okay i understand this differently than the common person would understand this because you are who you are and the way that you're wired and the way that you analyze or assess a creative situation. But even Rick Rubin will say, Roman Reigns is the Paul Heyman guy. I'm the wise man. And I am, all false humility aside, behind the scenes, I serve as wise man for Roman Reigns. For that human being, 100%. But I learn as much from him in every day as he will ever learn from me. Of course. I, I've learned so much being with him speak even when i teach him something i learn from him he's brilliant he is forward thinking i got to keep up with him i'm challenged every day to keep up with the progressive approach that he takes to our industry he he looked at pandemic wwe with a digital audience in a manner that no one else did Everybody else is bitching. Everybody, oh, we're limited. Oh, we don't have the crowd. 
oh, we can't feel who's resonating. We can't feel these new baby faces. Are, are they over? I don't know. We don't know if the audience will click with them. We don't know what they make a connection with the audience. The audience isn't there. And all he saw was opportunity. Oh my God, look at the things we can do with this. We can do, we can do things in the ring without a microphone. And we can have the cameras in there with us because they're not blocking any view. They're not on the hard camera view because we can, we can cut it. And we can have the cameras right there in our faces. We can whisper. You can't whisper when there's 22,000 people, even into the microphone. You have to whisper like this so that the audience at home can hear you. But when there's no audience, you can whisper. And you can start doing movie scenes. We can, we can bring a sophistication to this product. We can upgrade the product. We can elevate the product. We can bring better acting to, these, to this product. We can do scenes instead of angles. We can play out storylines that in this soap opera of professional wrestling slash sports entertainment is so important. It's the story that's the hook. And we can literally draw an audience, attract a crowd to see the next chapter of the story play out and it doesn't even have to be a match anymore. We can completely tilt the axis of what is perceived to be sports entertainment and professional wrestling. Would this not have happened if not for the pandemic? No. No way. Something else would have happened. Yes, of course. Something else something would be always the, happens. Right. So something but would this, something would be the, the disruptive specifics catalyst. are because of this situation now we're performing without an audience, it changed the game. And there's a way to change the game where it ruins the game. And there's a way to change a game where it's the greatest you've ever seen the game. CD changed vinyl. Napster changed CD. Apple changed the Napster generation. Streaming became the way to go. There will be a new disruptor in the distribution of music that comes along, either based on natural revolution and evolution or based on circumstances in this world elon musk colonizes mars there's no streaming on mars uh-oh what do we do we go back to vinyl we're, we're something something will happen whatever the optic wires and nerves uh, satellites uh, can, can can bring us someone will say oh this is a distribution portal really how do you see that oh don't you see it no Ah, but the visionaries do. Roman Reigns saw it. He just saw it. What he didn't have was the character to give it because everything that was being pitched to him was the big dog. We're going to bring back the big dog, and this is your yard, and you're going to bark and bite. And, you know, you know, and... and, and oh, and, of those, the five years that, that he was the big dog, how many years was he out? Because he was out. One one year about yeah i don't know the exact amount of time and was, at the time that he left did we know he was coming back oh nobody knew nobody knew how sick he was i mean they the thought was he has a handle on this the thought was this is treatable the the thought was he'll be back but 
you're talking about a very unpredictable affliction that can take a wrong turn real fast. And next thing you know, the world is and his family is suffering without him. So, I mean, nobody knew. I mean, How much did that change him? I'm sure it gave him a greater appreciation of life. I'm sure it gave him a greater appreciation of one's own mortality. I'm sure it gave him a greater appreciation of the blessings that he has over and above what many other people have. We, 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 John Cena, to me, is a real-life hero. He's a superhero. When I become a grandparent one day, if I'm asked what my grandchildren should watch, it's not or read comic books or whatever. It will not be watch Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or the Incredible Hulk. Want to see a superhero? Go look at what John Cena did with his life outside of the ring. That man's a superhero. I I don't have the words to convey the admiration I have for John Cena as 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 a human being. There had to come a point in time where Vince had to sit down with John and say, "You need to let me go public with these Make-A-Wish visits. You have to. You know you're hurting Make-A-Wish by not allowing me to do that. Because if people understood how much." of your time you give to Make-A-Wish and to these kids, they'll be inclined to contribute. They'll be inclined to get involved. You will help them if you allow this because Cena never wanted to exploit it. He never wanted publicity for it. He never wanted recognition for it. He wanted to just do it. That's a hero. People who go through life and say, I'm going to do this because God will smile on me and it's my ticket into heaven. Well, then your motivation isn't really pure, is it? Your motivation is I want something back for this. I, I, want, I want my VIP pass to heaven. I want God to like me because of this. That's not why John Cena did it. John Cena did it because it was the right thing to do. I run into people and they say, how are you doing to me? And my answer is pretty much always the same. Now, nowadays, I'm a blessed man. And I believe that. I believe I'm an extraordinarily blessed man. And what it boils down to is, when I woke up this morning, I, I called both my kids. And guess what? They're healthy. I'm a blessed man. Everything else is relative. Ah, the finish didn't go well. Okay, uh, there'll be other finishes. Hey, you got fired from your job. Okay, you know what? I'll find another job. Hey, the stock market crashed. You're broke. Okay, I'll make more money. Hey, your house burned down. Your car blew up. Oh, you, you lived through this, the house burning down. Your family's okay. It's just a house. Who exactly. Shit, right? Family's okay. You're a blessed man. I've looked into the eyes of the parents of these Make-A-Wish kids. Kids accept their fate. Bravest souls you can ever meet. The parents, hell on earth. Take me, not my kid. Please take me. Take me and hurt me along the way, but make this painless for my kid. Take me and torment me forever. Send me to hell, but let my kid have a life. They'll trade anything, anything, to not have this existence inflicted upon their child. Their fate is worth worse than a tormented death. And you look into the eyes of those parents and you walk away 
and your kids are healthy, you're blessed. I'm a blessed man. Roman Reigns had an affliction. His children, thank God, thank God, as of now, don't share that affliction. His children are healthy. What a blessed man. His, his mom's still alive, and what a character she is. He's a blessed man. His father's still alive and a legend. What a blessed man. He has suffered loss in his family. His older brother, Maddie, passed away. So he knows what that's like. So I think what he went through, having lived, and he was on the road 250 days a year at the time, 200, 250 days a year. He was on a full schedule, working every show. And then it stopped. Boom. Now you're home. Boom. Complete shock to the system in every conceivable way. Wow, you know what? I'm not on TV. And the business went on without me. Hey, you know something? I'm not in St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, New York, Buffalo, Syracuse, Tampa, Miami, Oklahoma City, Saudi Arabia. I'm not in Saudi Arabia. This happened going into a Saudi show. His recurrence happened heading into a Saudi show. And it went on without him. The world goes on without me. And I'm still here. And I'm getting better every day. And my children are healthy. And my wife is with me. And my dad's alive. My mom's alive. And I'm alive. And I'm capable of coming back. What a blessed man. I think he really felt that this time. You know, yeah. I think it gave him a chance to really appreciate life. Let's talk about the transition from you being the advocate for the beast to becoming the wise man. Well, the world changed. The zombie apocalypse hit. I had become in 2019 the executive director of Monday Night Raw. This is while I'm still on camera with Brock. And as we are headed towards that WrestleMania, the number I don't remember, though I should because it's a very unique one, it's the only one with no audience, the pandemic hits. Now, Brock's an expensive meal ticket. He was right in 2004. Leave, become a much bigger star in the outside world, come back, get paid outside world celebrity money and schedule. And... So, without being able to run live events and without Saudi and that enormous deal coming in, budgeting for Brock Lesnar in an empty arena several times a year doesn't make business sense. So, when Brock's contract came due and we're in the middle of the pandemic, it doesn't make any sense for WWE to do what they had done every year, which is, yeah, we know this was your final year, but if you'd consider, we're going to throw more money at you. Give us another year of this. And this was a year where that wasn't going to happen because there was no way to get a return on the investment. So Brock went back to Saskatchewan. And in his mind, that was the end. He was done. I'm still there as executive director. Roman Reigns has taken time off. With his condition, he's not exposing himself to this pandemic that we don't have a grasp on how severe it can be yet quite just yet. And at the same time, 
He's had enough of the creative. These things are running concurrently. The feud rivalry story with Baron Corbin over dog food and the infamous Suffer and Succotash promo had weighed on him enough to where he said, I've had enough. I've reached the cap. I can't go any further as the big dog. I've peaked. And as an athlete, I haven't peaked. As a performer, I've barely scratched the surface. I have so much more to offer. And since I'm taking time off, I'm not coming back as the same person. This is where I make my move. This is where I do for me what Lesnar did for himself when he conquered the streak. Something has to become my defining moment and then propel forward from there. The catalyst to something completely different. Four WrestleMania main events to his credit, a run on top since 2015, and one could even say always near the top from 2012 to 2015, but something has to be generational here. Something has to define him as as Austin, Rock, San Martino, Hogan, a transformative personality that can then ultimately make the case, I, Roman Reigns, am the greatest of all time. Which the big dog was not. No way. No, it's an authentic. It's, it's a portrayal. And so, it's not real to him. So what happened next? So Vince removes me as executive director in June of 2020. And uh, I thought I had a bunch a bunch of months left on my contract and I was going to ride it out and we'll see where we go from there. There were limited options in my agreement as to whom WWE could put me with. I, I, when I had the leverage, I, I wrote that in because we had reached a point with the cachet of being Brock Lesnar's advocate that if anybody else you put me with could either make them instantly a star or you're watering me down and, and ultimately hurting the other person because they don't belong with me. Mm -hmm. They don't measure up to where you're used to seeing my character bring someone down to the ring, which is either the main event of WrestleMania or close to it. One of the few names on this list was Roman Reigns. Another was Brock Lesnar, obviously. Another was Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey was having a baby. Brock Lesnar wasn't coming back with Saudi being down. Kind of left Roman Reigns in there. So Vince calls me in the middle of August, and he says, uh, I'm going to take you back into television. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, he's going to make me a commentator. And Jim Ross isn't here. Mm, who am I going to work with? How's this going to go? What is a commentator in 2020? How can I be disruptive? How can I be evolutionary in the process? How can I redefine this role? Because I don't just I don't just want to settle in and do what's been done already, even by me. I want to I want to do this differently. I said, okay, well, what do you got in mind? And he says, I'm going to put you with somebody. And I'm thinking, uh oh, has he read my contract? And I said, well, you know, Vince, the options are kind of limited in that. And I just, uh, and I'm trying to tiptoe into the, 
a delicate situation here where I'm about to butt heads with them. And I'm thinking, Ronda's pregnant. Brock's not coming back doing with Saudi down. Certainly he's not putting me with Roman. And he goes, I'm envisioning uh, Roman Reigns with Paul Heyman. And I'm thinking, oh my God, he's gonna he's gonna pull the trigger on this. He would never pull it with Cena. He would never have allowed Cena to become to the come heat. to the dark side. Yeah, yeah. Cena was gonna be Anakin Skywalker his entire life. Yeah, he was never gonna be Darth Vader. A heel, a villain, an antagonist. Talk about the villain in pro wrestling in general. That's the archetype for 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 anyone who doesn't uh, study this stuff. The job of a villain in pro wrestling is not to be the bad guy. The job of a villain in pro wrestling slash sports entertainment is to make the other person the hero. And if you happen to become marketable yourself in the process of defining why I should like the baby face. More power to you. But that's not your primary responsibility. The primary responsibility of the villain is to define what's so likable about the hero. Present the antithesis. Prevent the hero from doing the things that make him a hero or her a hero. And then be the victim of the avenging babyface who brings the comeuppance to you in front of a crowd that's willing to pay to see it. The heel is, the villain is, stereotypically, the one you pay to see get beat, beat up, or both. And if they can keep some of that villainry attached to their aura after the avenging babyface gets his revenge, then they can still draw money and make yet another hero, another babyface. That's the role of the villain. Okay. When Roman Reigns and I finally talked in August of 2020, in a continuation of conversations that we had had for five years, four, four years about, oh, if we ever got together, Oh, yeah. Brock Lesnar's advocate ever switched sides and got behind this guy and promoted this guy and articulated for this guy, we'd set the business on fire. And we knew he couldn't be the big dog. Now, anyone who knows this man understands he has a star's presence. First of all, he looks like Aquaman. I say this, fully obsessed heterosexual man. He's the best looking man up close. You know, it's it's like a, I I I don't remember which director it was. I, I think it was the director of a, of the movie Troy, and and he said he said uh, he was directing the movie, and you know Brian Cox is doing this scene, and and uh, Peter O'Toole. What a cast in that movie, you know. And he said, and Brad Pitt walks on the set, says, and he says, and I. Couldn't stop staring at him going, oh, my God, look, how is it possible that someone's, you know, Roman Reigns is, 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 is that striking of a, of, 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 a, of a presence, you know, of, 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 of what an alpha male athlete is supposed to look like to 
He's incredibly gifted as an athlete. He's a D1 football player and was also, coincidentally, being picked up by the Minnesota Vikings when he got flagged with, with, with leukemia. That came out in his medical test as the Vikings wanted him, of all teams, you know, which is the same team Brock tried out for. Third, he, he, his, his, again, his understanding of performance and, and, and his, his desire to be more and to do more and challenge himself to become more, his, his acting chops are there. They're really there. He's a natural. He can tap into emotions that trained Shakespearean actors have a hard time finding and have to end up going method to find because they can't find it on command. And he can. He's a magnificent actor. And I always looked at him and thought, not in these words, but that's the tribal chief. And it's not just a play on the Polynesian Islands or the Samoan tribal chief. I, I, I know a lot of people suspected at first that was me paying homage to Peter Maivia, you know, the Paramount High Samoan chief. It's not. The idea was the tribe is the WWE universe. And he's the tribal chief of the entire WWE, not of the Samoan Islands. He's the tribal chief of the WWE universe. Yeah. And he operates out of the island of relevancy. It's funny because we almost didn't go with island of relevancy. We almost went with championship island. And somehow we realized, well, that limits a decades-long progression of the character because if it's not about the championship, then why are we on championship island? Yeah. The but island of res relevancy is amazing. Yeah, we lucked into that. Interesting about things like the island of relevancy and the tribal chief and the head of the table and uh, suplex city, that sometimes it's something that you actively write and sometimes it's an offhanded comment that you realize somebody just said some things like, let's use that. Right, well, the tribal chief, I came up with tribal chief and Roman came up with special counsel for me and, and, and he tagged me the wise man. And that, I remember when he said it the first time and it seemed like an offhanded comment. It didn't seem like, at the time that I saw it, it didn't seem written. No, there was no plan to it. In fact, I, I actually thought he was giving me a nod to Freddie Blassie and the Grand Wizard and, and Lou Albano because for Vincent James McMahon, they were known as the three wise men of the East. They had a lock on being managers in the San Martino, Morales, Bob Backlund eras. There was no other managers in the WWWF, WWF. Uh, in 1984, Roddy Piper was brought in as a manager. I didn't know that. Grand Wizard died in October 1983, and Roddy Piper came in originally as a manager. How did the Grand Wizard end up in wrestling, considering Fred Blassie and Lou Albano were both wrestlers who became managers? Ernie Roth was a five foot four, five foot five inch, uh, fragile, small, unathletic Jewish man 
from Canton, Ohio, that made his living on the radio <laughs> as a televangelist. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. That's amazing. He, are there any recordings of his televangelism? I'm sure, I, I, I'm I sure there to hear are. That. I would love to hear them myself. Yeah. One would think he would be the closest thing to Dr. Eugene Scott. I love him. My hero. You and my I are idol. I love him. Oh, my God. I, I, Eugene Scott used to come on TV in, in, in New York on Channel 68, which was out of Union, New Jersey. Uh, they had uh, they had Uncle Floyd, Uncle, Uncle Floyd, channel, yeah. Uncle Floyd, and Oogie, yeah. and they would also have wrestling programming on. They they had Bill Watts' TV on. Wow. They they had uh, World Class on. They had Crockett's TV on. But Channel sixty eight for hours and hours a day would air Doctor Eugene Scott, and uh, <laughs> you know the whole Jimmy Swaggart scandal had happened. You know, and and Eugene's got you know is on there, and you know, and he's smoking a cigar, and he has the hats, and he's and he's having his band play the song "Kill a Pissant for Jesus," and he says, and he starts talking about you know, I, I well, my sins aren't the same sins as Jimmy Swaggart's, but I have sinned in my lifetime, and I plan on sinning again. And if you're watching me at home and you're trying to live a righteous lifestyle and you're not sinning, well, you're doing Jesus an injustice because Jesus died for your sins. <laughs> and if you don't sin, there was no reason for the Son of God to have died. <laughs> I remember when the, the Iraq War started, he said, nuke him in the name of Jesus. Oh, he was just so so and, funny, so smart. Oh, brilliant! I mean, yeah. and you know, he 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 bought the church in L.A. that had Jesus saves on it, and and then uh, the government came after him for taxes, and and he and 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 he, and he was all pissed off about it, and uh, and one day he's on there and he's he's just smoking a cigar and he's not saying a word and he's and he's going through the Bible like 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 the old Evelyn Wood speed reading courses and uh, and he's going through the Bible and he and he says he goes well I've been sitting here for about thirty minutes just going through this book and I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty well educated on pretty well versed on the verses within this book and I just want to say to the Internal Revenue Service there is no such word as audit in the Bible. <laughs> and, and, well, there's a defense for you, Amazing. you know, and, and I, oh, I was such a fan of Eugene's. And I would imagine that Ernie Roth, Erwin yeah. Jacob Roth from Canton, Ohio, was a lot like Eugene Scott. Wow. And the Sheik discovered him. Amazing. He, uh, he had done some stuff in and around Ohio. He'd managed Magnificent Maurice. Uh, and 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 handsome Johnny Barron, and then Johnny Barron, and beautiful Bob Harmon, who he ended up living with for many many years. That was his partner for uh, un, until Ernie's death, and uh, and the Sheik discovered him and, and brought him to Detroit as Abdullah Farouk. So he went from being a, a small frail Jewish man playing a televangelist, to, uh, spreading spreading the gospel of Jesus on the radio to make money. To becoming uh, a, a a wealthy Syrian businessman who who backed the sheikh, and and he always found it funny that the sheikh would allow himself to be billed as the sheikh when 
the name is actually Sheikh. That Sheikh is not actually appropriate in, in Arabic culture. It's Sheikh. And he goes, but but the Sheikh, being as smart as he is, would accept the terminology because it's easier to pronounce by the ticket-buying audience. <laughs> So, so Ernie funny. and Albano and Blassie were the three wise men of the East. So when, when Roman just offhandedly called me the wise man, I was just like, wow, he just threw me something, man. He, he just bestowed upon me a sacred name in WWE, WWF, WWWF culture. Wow. That, that, you know, in, 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 in the way that his family, in McMahon family dynasty, that, that's a sacred name. You know, Bobby Heenan was not the wise man. Jimmy Hart was not the wise man. Um, Slick was not the wise man. None, none of these people ever got bestowed upon them the title of wise man. So I just thought like, wow, I, he just made his special counsel a wise man. That, I will remember this promo for the rest of my life. And then everyone started to come up to me going, a wise man, could I ask you something? It just stuck. Even Vince would say, Wise man may have a moment when I'm like, well, even Vince has called me wise man? What have you done? It's he amazing. just branded me. Amazing. That's just Roman. He stumbles onto things. Amazing. He, the acknowledge me was a stumble. That's the best. It's the best. We were trying to figure out, you know, what does he really, because his first storyline as champion was with his cousin Jay. Yes. And we were trying to figure out the Which core. was unbelievable. Yes. That story was unbelievable brutal story yes head of the table grew up with these two not as cousins but as brothers yes but always was the biggest one in the room in a culture where size does matter because the biggest of the tribe goes out and slays the woolly mammoth to feed the nine children and cousins at the dinner table the, the most capable feeds the family. And he was always the most capable. He was the big oose. He was, he was the big one of the family. He was the one of the next generation. Yeah. And the twins were twins. A team, a unit, a combination, a collaboration uh, that, that, that could think and act as one, but were two individuals that acted as a team. And all together, we the ones. So uh, we were trying to figure out the How core. did We The Ones come? Do you remember? It was one of the Usos that came up with it. That you, and I think just said it. Just I don't, I don't think the, it was out, a... Out of the blue. Yeah. We heard it. We went, oh, that's it. We that, The Ones. We, 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 that's our tag. Was, we got this one. And, uh, and, and Roman had said, well, you know what I really want from Jay? I don't want his love. I have that. I don't want his admiration. I don't even want his obedience. I'll take that from him. You know what I need? I'm the head of the table. I am the tribal chief. I need him to acknowledge me. And the moment he said it, we all got chills because we knew this is bigger than this moment. Yeah. This is the declarative statement. This is the definition of the character. What does the character want? What does the tribal chief need? What does the head of the table seek? Acknowledgement. And it's emotional. It's an emotional. If you think of all of the popular catchphrases, none of them are emotional. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? That's not emotional. That's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. 
alpha male statement. You know, you know why that's the bottom line? Because motherfucker, I fucking said so. Because yeah. I fucking said so. Because yes. I motherfucking said that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And you will accept it because it comes from me. If you smell what the rock is cooking, same thing. Very alpha male. Very declarative. Very boss. Very dominant. Dominant. You're all my submissive bitches. You will, you, you will be subservient to my vision because that's what The Rock is cooking. If you smell, it's a rhetorical question. It's not, hey, by the way, you kind of get what I'm saying? It's, you get what I'm saying, don't you? If you smell what The Rock is cooking, it's, it's imposing one's will on the other person. What you gonna do? When the Hulkster, when Hulkamania runs wild on you. In other words, you're hopeless. You're helpless. There's nothing you can do. What you gonna do? Nothing, bitch. It's the prison scene. Hey, I really like your shoes. Oh, yeah, thanks. You know what? They're I didn't ask you what brand they were. I told you I liked your shoes. By this time, you should be taking them off and handing them to me. When I ask you what size your shoes are, your answer is your size, sir. That's the prison logic. These are prison declarative statements. You're in the yard. Rest in peace. That means you're dead. You're dead, motherfucker. You're against the undertaker. You're going to die. Die at the hands of the dead man. You know what Roman's catchphrase is? Needy. The most confident performer, the best looking man, the guy that looks like a champion. The one guy that can handle Brock Lesnar. The D1 athlete. A second generation Samoan American wrestler. And he's needy. He's a tribal chief. He's the head of the table. He runs the family. He's the biggest star. But he's needy. He needs you to acknowledge him. He needs you to acknowledge him. Please acknowledge me. I'm not here for your love. I'm not here for your affirmation. I'm not here for you to, 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 to chant my name. I just, I need you. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It puts the power in the audience to react any way they want. Any way that you want. Boom me, boom me. Acknowledge me. You yeah. want to cheer me, cheer me. Acknowledge me. Yeah. Acknowledge it's me. It's not learn to love it. No, 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 no. There's no command. No. It's a plea. It's a plea. It's a beg. It's a plea. From a man who doesn't beg, from a man who rules, from a man who commands the island of relevancy. Please acknowledge me. Please, just acknowledge me. It's all I, I don't just want it. I, I need it from you. And when you do it, do it authentically. Going back to George Michael and Freedom 90, going back to the big dog being manufactured by the corporate structure and the branding and the marketing and, 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 and the global push of, of the machine of WWE, we are encouraging the audience's reaction to be genuine. Do not respond to us as villains or heels or, or bad guys or antagonists. Don't respond to us as heroes. We're baby faces. We're good guys. We're fan favorites. You know what you do? Respond to us any way you want, but respond to us. Acknowledge us. Please <laughs> acknowledge us in any way that you want as long as you do. Yes. 
the most dominant force in WWE. And it's a plea. It's a beg. It's an It's so beautiful when he does it. And the reactions are always incredible. Yeah. Because it empowers the audience to be real. It empowers the audience to be themselves. It empowers the audience to be their own tribal chief and say or do anything they want. And the most powerful performer in the industry in decades is asking you, pleading with you, begging you, needing you as an audience member to do something. Please do this. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. What a psychological twist that this dominant figure. Well, it makes him vulnerable. It makes him human. It makes him, we want to see how it's going to go because he's not a machine. He's not Brock Lesnar. He's not a beast. He's an emotional human being. Yes. Vulnerable. Yeah. Exposing his own vulnerabilities, which is why when he gets angry, which is why when he cries, which is why when he questions the loyalty of his own family members, you feel those emotions in him. You feel them coming out of him and you believe them. You buy into them. You need to live with him, not just vicariously through him. He's not limited by the label of a villain or a heel or a bad guy. He's so much more. He's a compelling, complex, sophisticated, layered character. This is what David Chase wanted to do with Tony Soprano. Got a mob guy that kills people with his bare hands, orders the death of many men. And yet, at home, his kids bitch at him, One's flunking out of school. The other daughter's coming, coming into the peak of puberty and discovering boys that Tony Soprano doesn't want banging his daughter and all these different things. And he's on a psychiatrist's couch and he has, he's having nervous breakdowns and he has issues about his, about his own father, the gangster. No, this is a layered character that you, 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 you love to hate or hate to love and, and you feel all these different emotions about. Uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. You know, Mike, Mike in both shows, you know, the, these are compelling characters that are not black and white, mustache twirling, Salvador Dali, woo, Simon Bar Sinister, woo, <laughs> I am the Eve. These, the, the, this is not 1980s Hulkamania enemies. These are sophisticated contemporary characters that I can buy into. That I either love to hate or hate to love, and sometimes both within the, within the very same five seconds. Yeah. That I'm willing to pay to see the next chapter of. That, that these are situated as a villain, but not limited by the label. And that's the tribal chief. And he's able to play it and pull it off and find new dimensions and new layers and new emotions even. When just when I thought like, man, I... I've seen every emotion someone can play, but to display multiple emotions within the same scene at the same time where you know what he's doing, but you know what he means. And you know so much about the character now that when he does something, you know the true meaning behind his actions and his words. 
he is the most transformative character in this industry in, in generations. When the Sami Zayn character entered the story, did you have any idea what it would become? No. But I rode the wave because the audience bought into it. I listened to the audience. Because I've seen people come along that should have been as famous, as wealthy, as important, as relevant as Steve Austin, The Rock, The Undertaker, Brock Lesnar, Roman Reigns, and never click with the audience. And I've seen people come along that had no business making a dollar in this business, let alone surviving a day in the business, let alone drawing any money or being on top and have long, healthy, wonderful careers. And I don't know how many years ago it was, I was literally just breaking in as a character, as a performer. And I was asked the secret sauce of pro wrestling. And my answer was, oh, very simple. What works, works. What doesn't, doesn't. And, and that saying has become tied to my theory of, of this industry. When people ask, what's your theory of the industry? That's it. What works, works. What doesn't, doesn't. There are things that should work that check every single solitary box. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You've, you've experienced it. Absolutely. Here's the greatest. Out of I've our control. Heard. That's out of our control. All we can do is do our best in the moment, throw everything we have at something for it to be the best it could possibly be. But beyond that, it's out of our hands. And you can sleep well, even when it doesn't work, when you know I've done everything I can do. I know it's my best. Right. It's fine. Right. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Right. It's magic. It's magic. It is magic. It's magic. It's, ma it's incredible that it ever works. That's how magical it is. Right. And that's the thing. What works, works. What doesn't, doesn't. The Sammy thing worked. Who am I to question the audience? Did I think it would work? I thought... It'd be a nice short-term thing. You know, the, the example I gave was- yeah, two weeks, three weeks. He's a guy that gets a cameo that ends up doing such a magnificent performance that we invite him back the next week. The next thing you know, he's starring in the show. The Sammy story was the story of acceptance. And I've, I've given this before, so it's, I, I apologize. It's not unique. But the application of this, of this explanation still applies. Anybody that's been- past seventh or eighth grade can relate to this you're in high school you're sitting at a table you look at another table and you say i want to sit with those guys the cool kids the cool kids and your friends will say yeah but they're assholes yeah i know they're assholes but i want to sit with them but why they're assholes because everybody notices them because they're the center of attention because in this high school now let's use the word island. They are relevant. They live on the island of relevancy. And that's where I want to reside. And somehow you get your way into that circle. You're in that clique. You're in that elite group that no one else can get into. You're in a closed door society. You're relevant. And you look around and you say, Wow, these guys are assholes. How do I get away from them? 
And how do I get my revenge for the way that they're treating me like the asshole that I'm not? I'm pissed off. It's dangling the carrot in front of the horse. And the horse finally gets the carrot and realizes the carrot is sour. From the day this story started, it was obvious where it was going to go. It was obvious Sammy was going to get close. It was obvious Sammy was going to get in. It was obvious he was going to be sitting at our table, living on the island of relevancy. And it was obvious he was going to get bullied and battered and beaten and subjected to our assholedom to such a degree that at some point he's going to say, I don't want to be here anymore. I want out. This ain't for me. You're not who I thought you were. I don't like you guys anymore. And it was obvious that for that, he was going to pay a price. And yet, people wanted to see it play out. They knew the story that was going to be told, and they wanted to see our take on that age-old tale. And Sammy was magnificent. He's just so endearing. He does more with a hush puppy sad face than we could do playing to the, to the, to the people in the cheap seats. You know, you know the old expression in, in our business is you never look down, you look up. You, number one, it's, it's more cinematic. It's more operatic. But if you look down, the people up top can't see you. If you look up with your pain, your expressions, uh, then everyone can see you and it's more majestic and it's larger theater. And Sammy can do more just with that hush puppy face and a close-up of him looking sad than any of us can do reaching out for the, for the 5, 10, 50, 100,000 people in an arena, NBA arena, club, building, or stadium that we play. Uh, he was just wonderful. And, and, and he couldn't look less like someone who belonged in the bloodline. Like it, it's, it's so funny to see him with them. Couldn't fit worse. See, we, 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 we're, we're, we're having a free-form creative expression here. So I will tell you something that I always wanted to say to Sammy on television. Yeah. Because I will never be able to say it on television. Yeah. Because it's so inappropriate. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the scenes in the movie True Romance. Like a lot of people. Can't stand the whole entire movie. Just too long. But boy, you break it down scene by scene. One of the greatest movies ever made. Love Gary Oldman as Drexel in the movie. Christian Slater comes into Drexel's club and catches a beating from Drexel. And Drexel turns to his bodyguard, Marty, and he goes, he must have thought it was white boy day. It ain't white boy day, is it? And Marty goes, no, nah, man. It ain't white boy day. And I always wanted to do this thing with Sammy, with saying, you know what your problem is, Sammy? You thought it was white boy day. And take it from the one white boy on the island of relevancy, on the island of relevancy, it ain't never white boy day. <laughs> and of course, there's no way they'll let me say that on television. And It's not about the racial overtones to it. Or, you know, the, the, the skin color of a Polynesian against, you know, pale white Sammy from Montreal, Quebec. It's about a mentality. Because Sammy is as Caucasian as a Caucasian can be. He does not fit in on the, on, on the island of relevancy. He just doesn't. 
I do because I'm the wise man. I'm the exception. I'm Tom Hagen. I'm the non-Corleone in the Corleone family. I'm the adopted one. I was taken in. I'm, 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 and you're still afraid. Of course. Of course. The one wrong step with the tribal chief and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kosher stew for dinner. It's one of the funniest things is that when you stand next to Brock Lesnar, an actual monster, you're the most confident, fearless person in the world. And when you stand next to Roman Reigns, the needy, emotional tribal chief, you're terrified. It's amazing to watch. I'm the beast tamer. I, I'm the one that the lion loves. I can put my head in the lion's mouth with no problem. And by the way, just in case someone wants to fuck with me, it's my lion and he loves me. And if you fuck with me, I'm going to look at my lion and go, sick him. And he's going to tear you apart. My client, Brock Lesnar, client. We are tied in that manner. He comes to me. He hires me. He respects me. He laughs at my jokes. He listens to my guidance. He pays me. First promo I did with Roman Reigns, I said, just when you, the audience, thought I was out, he pulled me back in. Don't point your fingers at me and blame me for corrupting Roman Reigns. Point your fingers at Roman Reigns and blame him for corrupting me. He's not my client. He's my tribal chief. I answer to him. He can order my extermination on a whim because someone else pisses him off. And I didn't see it coming in advance. I better be the wise man. I better see all angles. I better see the future with more clairvoyancy than Nostradamus. Because if I'm not five steps ahead in a business where the, the top is three steps ahead, then I'm two steps behind. And that's death on the island of relevancy. I'm Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now. I'm, yes, advocating, to use the Brock Lesnar character, the character I played for Brock Lesnar. I'm advocating his greatness, but I'm terrified in the process because he ain't my lion. I don't stick my head in that lion's mouth. He's the lion that killed the lion that looked at me and said, I don't play those pussy games. Holy shit. That's a pussy game to you? Yeah, I'm a tribal chief, man. Look at my culture. Understand where I come from. The whole story of the love triangle between you, Roman, and Brock was a fascinating. It was far too short. It was a far <laughs> too short story because it really, we we never knew what was going to happen. We It was such a great, because of the history with Brock and the current excitement with Roman, it really could have gone either way every moment. And still can. Yeah. Well, we, we got a, a nod to that the other day when, did you know Brock was going to be here? Yeah, well, we'll always reference it, and there'll always be that suspicion. And everybody can relate to it. Everyone has an ex. 
that they have a soft spot for. Everyone has an ex that they're defined by. I don't care how many marriages Madonna has. You still think of Madonna and Sean Penn as being together. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. They're just people that you, that, that you identify with as couples. And they can all go their separate ways. And they can all have wonderful lives with, with other people and multiple children. And truly find the love of their life with somebody else. But you, def- but you remember them. Oh, yeah, that's, that's when it was the best, you know. And uh, there's an interesting dynamic amongst the three of us. Always has been. My guidance in playing it was a 1939 movie by a director named Michael Curtis. Great Hungarian Jew director. Far underappreciated by history as one of the greatest to me. I mean, directed Casablanca. What's the film? Angels with Dirty Faces. James Cagney as Rocky Sullivan. And it's an easy, it's an easy story to, to think about. James Cagney is Rocky Sullivan, and he's a kid, and, and his best friend is a kid named Jerry, and they grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City. And uh, a cargo train, is it a cargo train? Whatever. A train with a lot of goods on it is there and uh and 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 they're stealing from the train and some cop comes by and rocky sullivan james cagney and pat o'brien jerry run towards the fence and pat o'brien clears the fence and james cagney does not and he goes to juvie hall and he starts a life in juvie hall and jails and prisons and comes out as a world famous gangster in 1930s new york rocky sullivan and he's the toughest, most heartless, most ruthless, most uninhibited, bloodthirsty gangster that they had ever portrayed on film at this time. Far more than any of Bogart's characters in the Roaring Twenties, George Raft, Edward G. Robinson. This, this was the villain of all villains, the ultimate bad guy gangster. And also in the movie are a bunch of Hunts Hall, and Leo Gorsi, the Bowery Boys, at the time known as the Dead End Kids. And these are the kids that now Pat O'Brien, who got over the fence and became a priest. And a lot of people, it's funny because a lot of people, if you watch it today, will say, oh, this is the story of, of the Giganti brothers in New York. Vincent the Chin Giganti, a godfather, one of the heads of the five families, and his brother, Louis Giganti, who was a priest in the South Bronx that ended up rebuilding Fort Apache in the 1970s to where with Sebco housing in New York that became known that that area of New York Fort Apache became known as Little House on the Prairie because he built an actual neighborhood once Fort Apache burnt down. Well, this was way before the Giganti brothers and uh, Pat O'Brien Jerry becomes a priest. And the dead end kids are on his you know, in his boxing league, in his basketball, uh, you know, midnight basketball games, because he's trying to keep them off the streets. He doesn't want these kids to grow up to become a gangster like Rocky Sullivan, his childhood best friend. And of course, Rocky Sullivan comes back to town after spending a stint in prison. And there's Ann Sheridan, you know, as always playing the, the unattainable girlfriend who wants him to go straight. And Rocky gets mixed up with a bunch of gangsters, one of them being Humphrey Bogart, a crooked lawyer. And of course, he, Rocky starts shooting people. And now he's going to the electric chair. 
and he's not afraid. In fact, he knows he's going to hell, and as the expression goes, he's looking forward to getting close to the flames. And Pat O'Brien comes to him in the jail cell, and he says, I want you to do something for me, and I'll never be able to repay you. See, these kids are paying attention, and you're going to walk to that electric chair, and you're going to go in there unafraid. And Cagney says, yeah, I'm going to spit in their eye. When that guy comes for me, Jerry, I'm going to spit in his eye. I'm going to punch him in the face. I'm going to walk down. I'm going to walk down there like a man. That's what I got. That's all I got. And I'm, I'm taking it with me. And Jerry says, I want you to have courage. He goes, oh, I have courage. I'm not afraid at all. He goes, no, that's not the courage I mean. It's, it's a different kind of courage. It's a godlike courage. I want you to turn yellow. I want you to beg and plead. I want you to be a coward. I want you to go kicking and screaming to that chair. I want you to be everything they don't want to be. I want them to despise your memory. I want them to be betrayed by you because I don't want these kids ending up in the electric chair like you. And Cagney looks at him and he goes, can't do it. No way. And they go, it's time, Rocky, you know, and he, they open the cell door and he goes, get away from me, mug, or I'll split your eye again. And the cop gets too close and he punches the cop in the face and he spits in the eye of the other one. And they're walking down to get, you know, towards, towards the electric chair and you hear the other prisoners, you get him, Rocky, you show him, Rocky, don't blink, you know, don't blink, don't, don't sweat, you get him, you go, you go to that chair like a man, Rocky. And Jerry's hearing this and you can see the panic that this is going to be the voices of Hunts Hall and Leo Gorsi and the dead end kids. They're all going to end up on death row. They're all going to go to the chair like their hero, Rocky Sullivan, who went to the chair like a man. And he looks at him and he, and he's holding the Bible and he looks at his best friend from childhood and he goes Rocky please and Rocky looks at him with the coldest James Cagney eyes you've ever seen he goes no and you see the resolution in Jerry's eyes all I can do is pray for his soul and you see him start to pray and he's not looking at Cagney and from that moment on you see Cagney is walking there like a man but there's something in his mind and you don't know what it is. And then he gets to the chair and he turns to Pat O'Brien and he goes, you know, so long kid, you know, and Pat O'Brien says, you know, so long Rocky, may God have mercy on your soul. And you see Cagney mutter and you don't really pick up what he says, but it's something along the lines of, eh, I don't need, I don't, I don't need, I don't need God's mercy and I don't have a soul, you know? And he walks into the camera the, the, like the close-up they did of De Niro and Cape Fear, which is where they stole it from, just walked through the camera. And the next thing you, th you see is the silhouette of Cagney. You never saw him play the scene. You only saw the shadow. And he starts to beg. And he's crying. And he goes completely, oh, man, I got chills. I'm, I'm covered in goosebumps right now thinking about it. And he, he, please don't do this. Please don't do this. No, don't do this. Please, please don't do this to me. And you see him, grab him, grab him, grab him. And it's over. And the camera zooms in on Pat O'Brien. And he has a tear going down his eye. And the next scene, you see the dead end kids and they have, they have the, the, the newspaper and, 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 and it says, you know, killer Rocky turns yellow at the end. 
Pat O'Brien comes down and the dead end kids say to him, they go, is it true? Did he turn yellow? Was he a rat? Was he a coward at the end? Is that who he really was? So what's O'Brien going to say now? Yeah. Yeah. My best friend did this holy thing and now I got to talk shit about him. I talk him like it's a piece of shit. Or, or is he going to say, that's right, kids. So that he leads these kids to a better life. And he never answered them. He said, come on, fellas. Let's go say a prayer for a kid that couldn't run as fast as I could. And Cagney wrote a book called Cagney by Cagney, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is not nearly as good as Rick Rubin's book, which you should buy right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he saved it towards the end of the book, and he says, you know, people ask me to this day, what was really going through Rocky's heart? How did you play that scene? In your mind, did Rocky do it for Jerry, or was he really a coward at the end? And Cagney says, here we are all these decades later and no one really knows the answer but me. So why would I stop the conversation and tell you now? I played every scene regarding Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns with that in mind. I never wanted you to know. I didn't want to know. I wanted to be able to look back on it and say, oh man, you know what? I'm, I'm leaning towards Roman. And look back at that very same scene a, a year later depending on what I'm going through in my life or what I'm seeing in my life or what the circumstances or situations are and say, oh, no, 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 I was leaning towards Brock at that moment. I wanted to make it so compelling that you could make the case for either yeah. at every moment that even I looking back on it would change my mind as to how I was playing it. Amazing, ambiguous, and beautiful. I remember you threw the, you threw the belt in the ring at one point as a weapon and... It was not clear who was who was meant to grab it. It was right unbelievable. Right in the middle. <laughs> unbelievable. Did he, you know, and of course, you know, I'm not an athlete, so my, you know, my aim and my accuracy will be will be off. Did I throw it to to Roman and it was errant? Did I throw it to Brock and it was errant? Or did I throw it in the middle and say, whoever gets it, that's going to be the winner, and I'm with him? What was the meaning behind that? It could go either way, both neither or either. Yeah. All options, all conspiracy theories, all with merit. It's Cagney going to the chair and angels with dirty faces. I can make the case for either one. And one is more compelling than the other, and the other is more compelling than the one. Would you say the most ideas for stories come from movies, television, something that came before, or something that came before in the history of wrestling? or none of the above? Most of our ideas come from basic human emotion. The Sammy story of acceptance. The Cody story of an impossible situation of a good person having non-pure emotions like jealousy and envy. The Cody story is about the fact that when you lose a parent, one of the hardest things to come to grips with is the fact that you, your bubble will ultimately be burst with the overwhelming influx of knowledge that your relationship with your parent was an exclusive. Because we all fool ourselves into that. 
I'm the closest thing to my dad anybody could ever be. I'm the closest thing to my mom anybody could ever be. And then, you know, it, it, soon after a parent's passing, you're at the grocery store or, or, or at a convenience store or pumping gas or something, and somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, I'm Jim. Oh, hi, Jim. How you doing? I was friends with your old man. Oh, really? Yeah, you... I was on his bowling team on Friday. Oh, yeah, my father loved bowling on Friday nights. Yeah. Hey, you know, he always talked about how when you were seven years old, you drew that picture and you wrote, I love you, daddy, and how he, and how he kept that in his wallet to the day that he died and he wanted to be buried with it. And you sit there and instead of saying, wow, wow, that's wonderful that, that my father shared that about me with this person, you look at the person like they're your enemy and you feel betrayed and you say, my dad shared that with you? I thought that was my memory with my dad. And all of a sudden you're faced with jealousy and envy, which are not, you know, heroic emotions to have. It's to your discredit, allegedly, to have them. And then no matter how good of a human being, how great of a man you are, you're faced with it. And here's Cody, who not only had to grow up understanding he had to share his father with the world, his father was world famous. He had to share his father with people in the same industry that he was going into, which makes it even harder. And he's lived in the shadow of his father his entire life. That's the Jane Fonda line that I stole during that promo with Cody. The opening line in Jane Fonda's book is, I grew up in the shadow of a national monument. Cody Rhodes grew up in the shadow of a national monument. And he had to share access to that monument with everybody and even more personally with people in his own industry. It's one thing if your spouse leaves you. It's another thing your spouse leaves you for someone in the same business that you're in. It's one thing for your father to have loved other people as if they were his own kids. It's another thing that it's these are your contemporaries, your peers in your own business. It's impossible to shake that emotional baggage. And here's what makes it worse. The parent isn't, isn't there for you to talk to him about. Dusty isn't here. Cody can't talk to him about it. So we're laying this truthful emotional baggage on Cody that he can do nothing about. He can't escape. He's boxed in. That's where I came up with the line on television, the truth shall not set you free. It's going to imprison your soul. Wow. Great line. Thank you, sir. Great line. Thank you. That's the story. Now, that's just real-life human emotion. Yeah. So that's what we seek. Now, because I am so obsessed with cinema and moments of great television series and especially gangster threads, once we choose the story that we're telling, I find scenes that have played out, not to redo the scenes line by line. Just for inspiration. We're inspired by them. Yeah. The, the dynamic of the relationship, the relationship between the two people in the scene, the message that's being conveyed, the, the theme of what they're doing here. Michael Corleone sitting in the restaurant in Louis, at Louis' restaurant in the Bronx, having been told by Clemenza to drop, to, to sh come out of the bathroom blasting, and he doesn't come out of the bathroom blasting. He sits back down 
And now Solazzo is talking, and he's talking in Italian. So to the audience who doesn't speak Italian, it's just noise. And, and you're sitting there going, oh, my God, I don't know what he's saying, but whatever it is, it's heavy. And he's laying it on, and he's talking faster and harsher and angrier. And now the train's coming in, and you hear that noise, and the camera's shaking ever so slightly, and Pacino's eyes are going left and right because he's saying, do I pull the trigger? Do I not pull the trigger? If I don't pull the trigger, is he going to kill me? If I pull the trigger, my whole life has changed. I'm a gangster. I'm no longer just a soldier. I'm not a hero. This is a war hero. He's a war hero, this kid. And he didn't want to get mixed up in the family. And his father doesn't want him in the family business. But if he doesn't pull the trigger right now, this guy across the table and the dirty cop to his left who broke his jaw are going to kill his father. He has no choice. He better pull the trigger. But can he pull the trigger? He's not a gangster. These are innocent people. They're, they're not threatening his very life at this very moment. What does he do? What does he do? And his eyes are... And you, and you, and you read his emotions, because he's not sure what to do. But he knows whatever he does, this is the defining moment of his life. And nothing will ever be the same after this. Because either they're going to go kill his father, or he's going to go kill them. And either way, nothing's going to be the same. And then he gets up and he shoots them both. But it's the moment before that matters. Hmm. It's the emotions that are displayed. Now, we're not doing anything where we're sitting in a Louis restaurant in the Bronx where there's a crooked cop and there's a, a, a Turkish heroin dealer sitting in front of us. But that conflict is a scene that I love and look for situations within our story. I'll refer back. That's, let's look at this. Yeah, and you can play out the tension. Where are the moments of tension? Where are the mom where's the suspense? Where's the drama? And what are the possible, the releases, you know, the... Um... Yes. The scenario itself becomes a character in your play. Yeah. And that's what I look for. And I will, there's a great scene in the movie The Town by Ben Affleck with a, I, 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 I do this actor a disservice and I apologize to his fa fans and family that may be listening as everyone should to the Rick Rubin podcast, by the way. Um, and uh, he, he played uh, Kobayashi in The Usual Suspects. And he plays uh, this, 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 this gangster that owns a flower shop in, in Southie in Boston. And Ben Affleck is in debt to him. and He comes to see him. And the gangster says, you're going to do this for me. And Ben Affleck says, I'm not doing this. I'm out. He goes, no, you're not out. I'm going to do to you what I did to your father. And it's a terrifying scene. Because in, in it, Ben Affleck says something along the lines of, you don't like what I'm saying to you? I live at, and I, this is not the address that he gave. I'm just going to make up the address. You know, I live at 155 Mulberry Street. Come and find me anytime. And at the end of, end of the speech by, 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 by this gangster, the guy who played Kobayashi in The Usual Suspects, he says to Ben Affleck, he says, I hear you have a nice, new, pretty girlfriend. Huh. I don't want to send her funeral arrangements to your house. But I will if I have to. Now that I know where to find you. He took the hero's... Ben Affleck is the hero in the movie. He took the hero's lines and he shoved it up his ass. And he shoved it up his ass as uncomfortable and as hard and as mean a threat with as calm a voice as you could possibly have. The audience felt threatened. The audience in the movie theater gasped when he said it because he said it 
so cold, so menacing. And in wrestling, you know, menacing is Rick Rubin, I'm coming to your house. I'm gonna I'm gonna beat up your wife. I'm gonna kick your children's teeth. I'm gonna murder your dog. And then, you know, and then you get that great, you know, then, then Rick Rubin, it's just you and me, and you're going down. That's wrestling. And that's not where Roman Reigns is. So that's not where when the bloodline and I get together and we start studying movie scenes or, you know, that's one of the scenes that we study. How do you deliver a threat so cold, yet so menacing, and keep the audience engaged so that when you say it, they gasp. They say, oh, I just, we just had a thing Monday night with me and the Usos. And the original concept of it was we don't want Roman in a scene with the Usos right now because we don't want you to know yet Roman's reaction to the Usos losing the tag team titles. We have that as a hook as we head towards the next pay-per-view premium live event that Roman Reigns will main event. Why would we give that away right now? Make you wait for it. And set it up so that we have consecutive weeks on television to play that story out. So we had to keep the Usos away from Roman. And the idea was the, Uso knocks, the Usos knock on Roman's door. And I say, hey, the tribal chief says, take the night off. Don't worry about it. Everything's wonderful, you know. Okay, thanks. How does it progress the story? How does it give me a conspiracy theory? How does it become a topic of conversation? What about this makes me wonder, ooh, where are they going to go with this? So we changed it with moments to spare because we went live with it to where I come out and Jimmy says to me, you know, hey, to see the tribal chief. Oh, he's not in the room. And I'm blocking the door. And by my body language, you see, I'm not letting them come into the room. Oh yeah, he took Solo out for a walk because, you know, we have a big match tonight and I'm now I'm promoting the main event, promoting Cody Rhodes and Brock Lesnar against Roman Reigns and Solo. So I'm promoting, so I'm, 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 I'm justifying my existence in this promo in, in promoting the main event of the evening, keeping people hooked to the TV show. And, uh, but, but the tribal chief, what a great weekend. And of course, in a nod to them losing, I say, for all of us, not for all of us, but nothing we can't get over. But the tribal chief is so appreciative of your contributions over the weekend, which means they main evented night one, which means they, they interfered in the main event, trying to help him beat Cody Rhodes. It ended up taking solo to do that, but they tried their contributions, their efforts. Thank you for your efforts. He wants you to go to the jet. We have seafood ready for you. We're going to solo and Roman can take care of this light work of Cody Rhodes and Brock Lesnar promoting the main event again. We'll meet you on the jet. All's good. Thank you so much. Talofa, we the ones. And they go, okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. Two babies on in the room. Yeah, not in the room. Yeah. All right, we'll see you in the jet. Yeah, see you in the jet. All right, wise man. Okay, thanks, Usos. We love you. Greatest tag team of all time. And I'm smiling as they walk away. And then you see me lose the smile and I open the door and I say, I took care of it, my tribal chief. And the audience went, ooh, he lied. The tribal chief was in there. He didn't want to see the Usos. Is he mad? Is he busy? Is he just getting we don't know. getting together with Solo and planning a battle plan, which you're going to need against Cody Rhodes and Brock Lesnar? Is he meditating? Is he making other decisions and he can't deal with the Usos at the moment? Or is he pissed at the Usos? I don't know. 
There's a lot of variables going into that. I know Heyman lied. Did he lie to cover for the tribal chief? Or did he lie to delay this process as the tribal chief lines up one enemy at a time and he'll get to the Usos at his own good time? You don't know. Could be one of many things. But that little variable at the end, that little moment, that little twist, leaves us so many different ways to go. That's what we search for. And in that case, do you have a, a tentative plan of where you'll go that may change? Or is it just this leaves doors open and let's see which door feels right next time? All of the above, it's a free-form creative process. It's Rick Rubin laying on the floor, listening to music, trying to find that one moment where the singer hits a note or the, or the, or the strumming of the guitar is like nothing you've ever heard or the beat of the drum defines drumming for the next 10 years. It's, it's a note by Johnny Cash. It's, 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 a, it's a chorus by System of a Down. It's, it's an elongated word by Tom Petty. It's, it's Rage Against the Machine doing their take on, on, on older songs. It's you, you're lying there and you know, wow, this wasn't what I was expecting but it's what I'm keeping. Past three weeks before WrestleMania, my biggest question was never, what are we doing at WrestleMania? My big question has been, what are we doing at WrestleMania 40 next year? Great. So has there been an occasion where you see the next year playing out in a way that's really exciting and it's a great potential vision and then a week later something changes and it, everything switches? All the time. That's why even if even if we came up with a game plan for WrestleMania 40 and indeed even WrestleMania 41, it could all change this week. Circumstances, catalysts in the real world, stumbling onto something that we didn't expect, a moment in time that doesn't even have to be in our program, you know, that, 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 that we see on, 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 on WWE and we're like, oh my God, can we capitalize on this? Man, we can tie into that right now. The, the beautiful thing about, about open creativity. That seems like one of the things that's most exciting about professional wrestling versus anything else is that fluid, ongoing, the story's never over, it continues to change. We continue to be surprised by it and be prepared for the unexpected every time. It's a jam session and we're winging it with a plan. Yeah. With a plan. Yeah. But you also have to wing it considering there's, you know, how many hours of television is it every week? Oh my God. Oh, well, every I mean, week. Okay. There's three hours to Raw. Yeah. There's two hours of NXT. Yeah. There's two hours of SmackDown. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of other things in, you know, that live on the web. And, yeah, and then once a month you have a pay-per-view. or at, at least once a month, if not more. Yeah. So there's so much content always being generated. And when, when we were young, a storyline would play out over several months. Now more seems to happen week to week than might have happened every six months when we were kids. Yes. So Roman has the theory of consistency consistently great consistently consistent if if the narrative constantly and consistently progresses 
and moves forward, then wherever you take it, you're still progressing and moving forward. Here's something without giving away the secret sauce. We don't let the Roman Reigns character recap. He doesn't talk about what's happened. He brings the stories forward. He talks about what's going to happen. He talks about the emotions that are on the table at the moment. I recap. I say I told you so. I brag about the victories. This past Sunday night at WrestleMania, the tribal chief, your tribal chief, Roman Reigns, smashed Cody Rhodes. Last year at SummerSlam, your tribal chief, Roman Reigns, smashed Brock Lesnar, John Cena, Edge and Daniel Bryan, Big E, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, whomever it is. I recap. I bring you up to date. Roman Reigns does not. There's no nostalgia in the tribal chief. There's no looking back when you're the tribal chief. He's a shark. He swims forward or he dies. Can he pivot left and right? Yes. But in pivoting, he's still going forward. He's not going backwards. The tribal chief goes forward. That's something we decided very early. And we have never violated it and never will. And if we do, and it becomes the exception, then that's a story in and of itself. Yeah, and there'll be a reason. Yeah. Oh, man, this, he doesn't talk about things that happened. He doesn't refer back to last Thursday, last Wednesday. I'm a, this is something's going on with the tribal chief. It'd be the same as if he came out on television and he'd say, Damos y caballeros, aquí la luchando con la vida. And you go, he doesn't speak Spanish. There's a seismic shift happening here. Same thing. When he violates the code of the character, that's a story in and of itself. So it's a constantly shifting narrative because the world is constantly shifting or, or something happens that resonates that changes the way people see it or see the business or see our presentation and we have to address it. Or there's an emotion that's revealed in the audience that we can expose or tap into or go after or make people relate to, you know, make it resonate with them. So we're always looking for that, always trying to feel that out. Is there something out there that we're, or is there something about to happen that we can be one step ahead of so that when that emotion becomes prevalent, we're already into it? Where do you think wrestling can go that it's never gone? Besides the first WrestleMania from the Elon Musk colonized Mars? I don't mean a place. No, that was just my smart ass answer. <laughs> Find myself time to figure out a, a proper answer. I, um, the, the safe answer to sound pseudo intelligent is Inclusive storylines, a, uh, a transgender hero, a female that competes at the same level with the same marketing behind her as any of the male competitors. That's not Ronda Rousey from the outside world coming in as a celebrity, but a homegrown Rhea Ripley 
or Bianca Belair or Charlotte Flair or Becky Lynch or Bailey or or Natty or or any or any 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 of these fantastic performers that we have on the roster that get a platform as lucrative and as that carries as much opportunity on a global basis as any of their male counterparts. That's a very safe thing for me to say. And I wouldn't be wrong in saying that's a place we should go, could go, will go. The, 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 the unsafe answer, the one that I will preface <laughs> when I pitch things that I'm not all that sure about sometimes, and I say, well, let me just reserve the right to be really stupid in what I'm about to suggest. The other answer is an amplified aura of theater without theatrics. The transformative, the revolutionary, the evolutionary disruptor in this industry towards that theory is Roman Reigns. We do movie scenes in the locker room to further tell the story. Three, four, five-minute movie scenes showing vulnerability of his character angst of his character, worry of his character, sensitivities of his character, idiosyncrasies, nuances of his character, with his cousins, by his cousins, with the spotlight on his cousins at times, sometimes on me, sometimes in my sycophantic nature of appeasing the tribal chief while at the same time also appeasing him based on the fear that he can behead me at any time. A couple of years ago, if I said to you, we're going to do these locker room scenes that are movie scenes, and this villain, champion for a thousand days, unbeatable by anybody, is going to cry. Is that a spoiler, thousand days? I don't think we have another title defense before we hit a thousand. Oh, amazing! So congratulations. Well, I, I, I thank you, and and your tribal chief thanks you as well. And he's going to cry, or he's going to pivot because he's exposing his own fears, his jealousy, his envy, his rage. If I would have told you this, you'd say, "No, that's not what you do backstage." We stand there on a set. Sometimes in a locker room, they give just a different, ooh, they've peeled back the curtain. They're in a locker room now. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm standing here with the Tribal Chief Roman Reigns defends the title this, this coming Sunday and in the main event of WrestleMania against Cody Rhodes or this SummerSlam against Mr. X or, you know, and in Saudi Arabia against Mr. Y. And, and you know, you know the, the Tribal Chief, you know, some would say, Tribal Chief, this is your greatest opponent to date. Well, let me tell you, he's bringing everything he can, but he's not really up to the measure of the Tribal Chief. That's a locker room interview. Sometimes every now and then you, 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 you bring that fourth wall into play and there's this one scene of these two people meeting in the hallway, you know. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Uh, I didn't like you before. I don't like you now. Oh, yeah, your mother wears combat boots. All right, we're going to fight. But you, you've never seen just scenes play out like the, the way that we're doing it now. And ones that 
completely propel the the storyline in, in into in, into its next chapter. That was the secret of the Sammy story is what we were doing backstage with Sammy so that when we took these stories out to the ring and the story of his 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 desire for acceptance and our refusal to give it to him and Jay being the strongest minded in not giving it to him which pissed off the tribal chief for Jay to make the decision and not for Roman to make the decision. So to spite Jay and to show Jay who was the boss, that Roman would accept Sammy a little more every week just to piss off Jay. The jealousy and the envy within one's own family. Spite. We all dealt with spiteful people. And it's, and it, and it's not a pleasant personality trait. So the tribal chief as a villain will display spite. So these are all things that came to life in the ring based on the backstage drama that we were displaying. Not caring that the camera's right in front of us, never pretending that it's, it's not there. We're playing out scenes. Now this is a moment in time where it's being done so well by Roman Reigns and the Usos and Sammy and all those around him that it's accepted and people get into the story. The same way when I opened the door, when the Usos left on Monday, I said, took care of it, my tribal chief. They went, oh, gasped. If anybody else tried this, it would have bombed. Because Roman Reigns as an actor is better than anybody else in WWE. And he pulled it off. So we tailored this to his strengths. And now it's become an accepted part of the business. Do you think other people come along with the skill set to be able to do this? I think it's now part of the expectation of a top star to be able to act in that way, yeah. I think he's added a dimension to a top star that we didn't have before. Do you think we could ever get to the point where the ring becomes obsolete or maybe just at the pay-per-view? That the whole TV show is all the drama and the ring is becomes less and less part of what happens. The main event on most television shows. I mean, we, 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 you see, the Monday on Raw was the exception that defines the rule. We we teased Roman Reigns in a match, but that was the setup for Brock Lesnar and Cody Rhodes, and to get as many eyeballs on that as possible, and to set that entire scenario up, you needed to get to Brock Lesnar and Cody Rhodes versus Roman Reigns and Solo. So that's the exception, but we don't advertise, we don't promote, we don't tease Roman Reigns in a match on television anymore. When Roman Reigns is on television, the main event segment of that TV show is something playing out in the ring at the end of the night. In the old days, the television show was a promotion for the live show. Now, the television business seems bigger than the live business. Is that correct? Yes, of course. Okay. The, 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 the business model flipped, flipped when we got paid for programming. So is it possible that all of this is leading away from the wrestling of it? <laughs> at the very same time, the answer is yes. And at the very same time, the answer is no. Because ultimately, how do these stories get settled? 
how do they progress in the operatic theatrical presentation of professional wrestling slash sports entertainment. They progress within the story that is told in the physical conflict that plays out in front of your eyes that is labeled a professional wrestling slash sports entertainment match. Ultimately, it has to lead to something. If it leads to a car chase, then I'm not watching wrestling anymore. So a much larger part of the dynamic of the platform has become the play itself. But ultimately, it pays off with a story that is told not with oratory skills, but with physical skills in the ring. A spoken word concert may not be musical per se, but the designation of it is a story to be told by a person who's the storyteller and the stories that are presented within the context of the verbiage that he presents. Same thing. The stories will always conclude with a match. That's how we get you to pay to see it. But more stories are being told outside of the confines of a match, which ultimately make the matches mean more. Seems like it's getting to the point where the play is meaning more than the match, though. Well, the match is now a major component of the story instead of being the end-all, be-all. We don't just drive you to the match. Everything used to be an infomercial for the match itself. Now the match is just a major component of the story. Another wrinkle, another twist, another turn, another method by which we tell the story. Is that the biggest change in wrestling that you've seen over the course of your life? Creatively, yes. The, the business itself is so different. The World Wrestling Entertainment is being valued at $9.3 billion. When, when Vince first started, he was paying television stations to air his programming, giving the television station a percentage of the live gate when he came to that city. And now the merger through Endeavor with UFC is based on the fact of how many billions of dollars the programming is worth on the open market to be licensed. Vince is not paying to be on television anymore. He's being paid to be on television. That was the seismic shift. That was the game changer that made this a well-funded industry instead of just a mom-and-pop business that created a few millionaires in, 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 in the old-school promoter's room. But creatively, yeah, that, that's, that's the biggest difference, is, is, is the, manner in, the manner in which we tell stories and the platforms that we use in order to tell the stories and what we, we as the marketers and promoters and presenters, the content creators, as, as the kids say today, 
what we expect the audience to pay for. That's the big change. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. <laughs> I love hearing you wax poetic. Well, it's, it's, it's truly an honor to sit here with you. And I, again, I could do this for another 10 hours, so we'll do this another time if you're up for it. Oh, anytime. We barely scratched the surface. Oh, it's, it, would be my, it would be my honor, I assure you. So nice to talk to you. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine, sir, I assure you.